Hello again, my fellow Westorians. How are you all? We're happy to see you. It is Wednesday. It is a little past 7 Eastern Standard, and we have a lot of Game of Thrones action to talk about. This episode had a lot of implications for the books, which is a little unusual for a battle episode, because sometimes the battles, like the Battle of the Bastards, for example, hmm... Not a lot to do with the books, for example. The Blackwater, a lot to do with the books. It's kind of, there's a, a range, so it, you can't really tell. And this battle being so far after the point of the books we're at, well, that just makes it all confusing even more. That said, there is a lot of major implications for this battle. There are things like character deaths, as in, or another way to say character deaths is completed character arc. It's a more PC way to say that someone's dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's symbolism and endgame implications. Smaller things like battle strategies versus the army of the dead that we might see used in the books, uh, at least to some degree. Not a lot of them, but some of them maybe. And the variety of topics that we have in this episode is pretty substantial. But as it turns out, a lot of these subtopics are things that we've covered in depth in our scripted episodes. And I'm not just talking about us at History of Westeros. I'm talking about Radio Westeros. You guys have covered Melisandre and The Long Night and other things like that, haven't you, Lady Gwynn? Yeah, we certainly have. Uh, those two episodes were some of our earliest episodes going on five years ago now. So we have a lot of thoughts about that as well. That's cool, yeah. And on our end, we'll be dropping a few other hints for episodes that cover things that once we get to them, you know, and uh, same with Radio Westeros when we come along those. Because you'll see, it's, it's really cool. We're touching on a lot of subjects today. As it turned out, too, we had m too much material for this episode. So yeah, we're, we did. We're developing a little bonus episode uh, from some of this material that's going to relate to the prophecy coverage. So... We'll uh, we'll talk a little bit about more of that during the episode, but yeah, good news for everyone. We have so much to say that it's it's not going to fit in this episode. Uh, so let's start off with a couple simple things, get into some announcements, and then we'll get into the meat of it. Uh, one of the most one of the things we always like to start with, I'm not always like to start with, but you can easily point to whenever you feel down about the show, or if you just want to feel great about the show. One of the best things you can think about is the music. It's pretty hard to maintain a perfect 10 out of 10 average, but I'd say Ramin Jawadi has managed to pull that off somehow. It just never isn't, like, perfect, right, Lady Gwen? Absolutely. <laughs> how, how about that, uh, with Yoke Boy pointing this out to me, there's this really, uh, like, Fury Road kind of uh, music during that battle scene after the lines broke where everything is very chaotic. And then when the Night King... Uh, starts to raise their own dead. Uh, that scene starts with this really somber piano piece, which is called The Night King. Uh, and I'm sure I'm not alone in feeling that was such a powerful piece. It was a real callback to The Light of the Seven from the episode when, you know, Cersei blew up the, the sept, uh, which was also phenomenal music. It's absolutely unforgettable. That uh, piano piece, you like that yeah. piano piece, huh? Yeah, I'd like and dislike it. I'd say <laughs> I probably can just, you know, think about the notes of that piano piece and cry. So good job, Satan. Yeah, good job, Satan. 
<laughs> I love it. Satan. <laughs> and that song is actually called The Night King. So, yes, good job. And I like that catch about the, the being similar to Light of the Seven. Yeah, the piano, the very uh, distinct piano uh, featured there. That's a, a nice call. That's, that really does make it feel like Satan, doesn't it? You get the Light of the Seven, which is sort of heaven-like, and you got this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. This guy. This, this guy. guy. <laughs> and another thing they... Mm-hmm pretty much always get right i wouldn't say maybe just maybe not a hundred percent of the time but pretty darn close is even when it makes no sense at all <laughs> it mm. looks amazing <laughs> and i'm not one of those people that says it, it rarely makes sense i'm more in the middle that I, I you know i i find positive things and negative things to say yeah so, i'd say i mean there were there were criticisms of how this episode looked. I was yeah. one of the people criticizing it, and you know, and it's yeah, sure you can calibrate your TV or you can change the settings, and I did so when I watched it on my monitor. I could turn the brightness up, and it made it better. But you shouldn't have to do it. But there were a couple of shots that definitively, no matter who you were, I think you were like, this is gorgeous. And two of the shots for me were these two. I really liked the shot and a couple other shots like it of. You know, all the Dithac- of all of the Dothraki screamers charging into battle, the, you know. So cool. Uh, it's just mm. the fire. It helps the fire lights it up and all of that. Yeah, yeah. It gave us a little more light. It's <laughs> like, thanks, Melisandre. <laughs> more fire, please. Yeah, more fire, please. But this other one did not have light at all to add on to it. Um, and it's obviously, obviously the shot of Drogon and Rhaegal above the clouds, like this moment of peace above. And it's just absolutely stunning. We couldn't, you know, talk about this episode, even though this is our book to show episode and we're not really covering this sort of thing, per se. I couldn't let it go by. And we did have time to do images on Monday because of how late we got back from the convention, which anyone watching, I guess you may notice a a pattern with our (laughs) T-shirts here. I don't know. I can't really put my finger on what the pattern is. (laughs) Something right now it's, it's the it. gang went to ice and fire con. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so a, a few more a few words about ice and fire con at the mid-roll break but we have a lot to cover so we won't linger too much even though we uh loved it so so much um yeah so the imagery was fantastic but as Ashea said it's not exactly our focus here mm-hmm. um a couple of announcements like i said then we'll get into the meat of it after the season is over, I want to remind everybody, we uh, big thanks to everyone who's a patron. And after the season, we're moving our bonus episodes up to uh, the higher price point of $5 a month, which seems to be kind of the industry standard, quote unquote. But if you get in before that, you get grandfathered in. So if you come in for less than five now, you still get to keep all those bonus episodes and, you know, at that lower rate. So now's the time. Three more weeks or so of that discounted rate. Thanks to a couple of our key patrons whose level entitles them to a shout out. That includes Jeff Gnarly, the long snapper, History of Westeros' first sword, as well as our Dragon Rider patrons, the stalwart Talanes the Talon, King of Gagasos, Rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. You know, it's too bad there's no red dragon in the show because red dragons are so cool looking, but they're also kind of the, the cliche. To be fair, they really dragon. made Drogon a red dragon in the show. Like, that's true. You see his wings. He's got a lot of red too. He's him. reddish black. Yeah, he's black with distinct red. You're right. Yeah. Like, that's true. There's a lot of red on him. 
And also Robert the Fourth of House Ardeacor, burned king of Blazewater Bay, rider of Atroxus, a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. Right on, folks. Okay. <laughs> let's go to... Uh, let's see, our next announcement, which is we should have the normal schedule the rest of the season, Monday, Wednesday, 7 p.m., maybe starting a few minutes late like today, but roughly 7 p.m. Eastern, and 2 p.m. on Saturday, we're back to that, no more being out of town during the season, we'll be in place for the rest of it. Uh, there's a small chance we make a slight change to yeah. accommodate a guest, but, you know, nothing like a three-hour difference like we had on Monday. Uh, unless something truly unforeseen happens, like months ago when the Sea Snake episode was canceled because our internet was just completely unusable. Or like the Army of the Dead showing up at our house. That would, uh, that would probably stop us um, temporarily, you know. <laughs> I do, despite the, our schedule being more regular the rest of the way through, I do still recommend hitting that notification bell button in the bottom right to get notified whenever we go live, just in case we decide to drop an extra one, or in case you lose track of time and like staying notified. Then you don't have to worry about it. Hit that like button while you're at it, and also subscribe to Radio Westeros on YouTube. The link is in the description. I want to talk just for a second about conflict resolution, and this is something that matters to me a lot because I... I frankly argue a lot, you know. I, yeah, I, you do. I do. I argue. I'll readily admit it. It's been it's been something I've done since I was a little kid, and I try to be fair with it. You know, I try to be rational, but and it, you know, I lose my temper sometimes. And a lot of people bring this up because a lot of people are arguing on social media about this right now. So I'm going to use myself as an example. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hold myself up as an example of both what not to do and what to do after you do what you shouldn't do. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I've had some debates that got more like arguments with some of our fellow creators. It wasn't dramatic. It's not, it wasn't, no one called anyone names. No one was like, oh, you're stupid. Oh, I hate you. Nothing like that. It wasn't, it didn't rise to that level. But, you know, it got intense. And in both cases, there were two of these. We had a private conversation afterwards, resolved it. No problem. Back to talking like best buds. I really hope that a lot of you guys who are arguing with your friends out there can do the same thing I did and and dial it back and remember that we're all friends here. So I would be a hypocrite if I said I didn't do this. I'm part of the problem, but I'm also trying to be part of the solution by using myself as an example. So enough about that. Let's mm -hmm. love each other. <laughs> all right. Bran and Theon. Let's start there. A couple of cool <laughs> theories about what was going on. I think a lot of people are a little confused. What exactly was he doing? What Was he just watching the Night King or was there something to it? What do you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that on first watch, I kind of felt like the Ravens might be a little pointless, you know? Uh, but you uh, suggested that perhaps they're being used as allure is even further bait if bran was bait then bran and raven as ravens in the sky is even more bait it's uh i, I think that makes a lot of sense right i mean otherwise yes. there didn't seem to be a real point to what he was doing there uh, i really do hope that there's something a little more satisfactory to bran's arc um other than him just being bait yeah uh, you know, so much of what he's seen so far seems to be focused on other things like RLJ, for instance. Um, so we have to kind of think in our heads, how can we resolve that 
not only with this episode, but going forward and just maybe hope we get to see a little more of what brands mm -hmm. up to when he's off in his head. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, he was bait, but before this episode, and this is something I want to hit hard on throughout this episode, not everything that people did that was essential to stopping, you know, the long night happened in this episode. And so that's something that's going to take a lot more consideration going forward, looking back at what people have done. But you consider, you know, Bran shared information. He gave Arya the dagger. There's mm -hmm. things that he did that were important. And we have to, like, view, I think, each character and, and think about what they did that was pivotal. But that said, I do still think that there is, you know, definitively, obviously, so much more to the to the Bran plot line in the books. Yeah, I agree. That's a great point. Um and to back up what y'all are saying, if we want to get real detail-oriented, which of course we do, when the ravens fly out, when Bran flies out there with those ravens, he flies towards Night King, sees Night King, and that's the first time we see Night King in the battle, and then he enters it. It appears, it almost, you could say, well, maybe he was throwing that, The he waited for John and Danny to approach, and then hit them with that ice storm to throw them off, just as they were approaching the White Walker lines there. Um... And you could also argue that, well, hey, we are, doesn't he already know where Bran is because of the mark? Well, sure, but is it like a precise GPS location or is it just kind of a general like he's down there somewhere? So, I, I mean, like an example is I can use find my phone for my, you know, phone and it'll tell me it's in my house and I know it's in my house, but I can't. It's not like it's under the couch, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't. It's not that precise. So look in the couch cushions. <laughs> maybe we're stretching it, but I don't think that's unreasonable that he wouldn't know exactly where Bran is. Um, he would just know that he's kind of in the vicinity. But specifically what he does there is Bran like looks to him like that. And then Night King, you know, you flexes, stretches his powers, and is like, okay, I'm going to control all of these whites and come for you, Yeah, you know, right there. Yeah, he took over the whites. Mm -hmm. he, he, that's when he made the specific, like, ordered them to, to make the human bridge there, the corpse bridge. Uh, other than before that, they were just standing there kind of on their own, you know, whatever default mode whites have, <laughs> whatever that means. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely more to come on Bran. It's, it's a lot of questions about him. We're not going to do too much on predictions about Bran right now. There's going to yeah. be a talk of that on Saturday as and well as... And on this uh, pro Prophesied Heroes mm -hmm. yes, bonus episode. Yes, absolutely. The bonus episode will have that as well. We need a little more time to think it through, to be frank. I don't have a lot of great answers right now. Uh, Shay has got some stuff, but it, it could use a little more uh, marinating as well, yeah, probably. Yeah, I certainly can. I mean, I'm, I can't resist it. I'm going to get into some of it in this episode, but... Um, the bulk of it we are going to cover hopefully really soon in a shorter episode. Yeah. So uh, the last moment, let's talk about Theon. Probably, I don't know, it's hard to say. Everybody likes different characters, but Theon's death might have been the one that was the most major of a character death. Because uh, Melisandre is maybe, cause maybe I mean, equal if, to if him. But Melisandre, about it in terms of who's a POV character. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Terms, and those Mel two technically are. is, but she's had those one Those two chapter. are, but I just mean she has fewer POV characters. So you're, I, I'm saying that it had, um, adds to your point. Yeah. That those are the two most major character deaths. And Theon mm -hmm. wasn't someone we knew would die. Like Melisandre told everybody, I'm going to die in this strange country. So <laughs> even though her prophecies are wrong sometime, that one felt right. <laughs> and it certainly was. Uh, so Lady Gwen, tell us your thoughts on Theon's arc, please. 
Uh, many, many thoughts on Theon's arc. Uh, so I'll try to be brief. You know, I we've been mentioning that our our conviction going back to when we covered Theon that he was going to do something heroic. Um, we still do expect a very similar resolution in the books. Uh, and even though it didn't play out in the show the way I thought it might, uh, I do stand by the, the prediction that in the books, the weirwood possibly obsidian tipped arrows will come into play because if you think about brand's vision of brandon snow or at least what we assume was brandon snow not being included in the show uh the dark-eyed youth pale and fierce slicing three branches off the weirwood and shaping them into arrows you know we really if we think about that in terms of theon it really fits uh so you know still Lots of book implications here, even though it doesn't play out the same way. And I want to say that I uh, am suggesting that Theon go down in history as the Drowned Wolf. That's going to be my kind of headcanon for I like it. <laughs> Brave Theon. And I also want to point out a very big book callback that occurred to me in that moment when he charged uh, the Night King and the Night King just kind of you know, real slowly and well, lazily just, you know, ran him through. Uh, immediately I thought of that moment in the Game of Thrones prologue where it says the other's parry was almost lazy as he, you know, concluded his his duel with Waymar Royce. So right on. Another, another callback, one of many in this good, episode. Good catch. Yeah, that final moment when Arya stabs Night King has there's a lot that comes full circle. You got Theon's arc comes full circle right before, and it's it's the you get reminded of him saving Bran with his arrows in that very early scene mm -hmm. in the in the woods with Rob, and you have the cat's paw dagger. the The circle is complete there. It's being used to kill Bran, then being used to save him. You have the dragon glass driven into uh the night king's heart and Arya stabs him in the heart with the dragon with with the cat's paw dagger so just so many things even though i know there's a lot of plotting issues with that scene i definitely give i got to hand it to them for putting so much into that moment even though it, it's got some flaws the, the you know the, the the pro and con list if we're to divide that with the pro list is pretty high even though the con mm -hmm. list has quite a few uh line items as well <laughs> So, Ashea, we, we noticed a little other character, a little, little yeah. sadness here. Uh, well, sadness, I, guess, I would assume so, um, obviously. Alice Carr Stark, we note her. Um, we don't know much about her in the show at all, but we do see her going with Theon, taking Bran to the Godswood as part of the group of people that are going to protect him. And ultimately, we see that Theon is, you know, basically the last man standing, just piles of bodies all around him. So it seems like a safe assumption that she died, but I really would love it if someone survived who could like have borne witness to Arya killing uh, Night King, like yeah. someone who like was hiding in the Godswood. Because Bran's not, not going to get excited about it. He's yeah, like, mm. Bran's not <laughs> Bran's not going to brag about this, but I really want someone to be like, and then she did this, and it was epic. <laughs> yeah, she ran behind the tree and was just hiding, and like she crawled up in the branches. She's like, that was close. She's like, I was only up here because it's a better place to shoot my arrows from. I yeah. was. I wasn't hiding. Yeah. yeah. Well, think about in the books. Um, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Uh, we uh, Wex. Wex. Yeah, right? Wex Pike. Wex yeah. Pike hiding. He 
was hiding up in the weirwood tree, you know, watching. Um, you know, he was the one that observed the, the sack. The, yeah, yeah, the sack and yeah. See, I, I think so, it's not that like dumb at all for her. Just no. like for someone out of there, just be like, someone should be up. In, some people should be in the trees shooting down. Yeah, and they're less likely to get got. But there's, that, there's a little yeah. bit of hope. I, hope. <laughs> I, I Alice. very little bit. <laughs> 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 yeah, so you kind of wonder. Um, it's probably not going to matter. Come up much in the show. Maybe they'll. Maybe we'll get a line or two. But that's that's as much as we can hope for. Most likely that they'll talk about. You know what's going to happen in the north now with the aftermath. Um, the, despite just from little things like well maybe not a little thing like cleaning up all those bodies. Like damn, that's a lot of bodies. Uh, to just I wonder what they're going to do with all those dragon remains, <laughs> like Viserion's yeah. undead yeah. body. Like some of that's really useful, do, valuable yeah. stuff. Do cool stuff with those bones, and and I don't know. Danny might find that rather macabre. Yeah, but, you I don't know, know but <laughs> still, uh, she'll have to live with it <laughs> and or like, die with it. Yeah, or die with it. Yeah, uh, and what are they going to do with the wall? Just settle north of the wall now? Like they don't need it anymore? Or you know, wildlings are just going to kind of come, come and go freely between that huge gap? How, a little interesting how short is like winter now? Yeah, is it? Is, it, it yeah, I the doubt season's it just normal ends. now. Like it, it just started. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was like, whoa, winter was really quick this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they said it was going to be long, but it was not. They said it was going to never end. <laughs> <laughs> now you mess it up even more. There's never going to be a winter. There's just going to be summer forever, which I don't know if that's a whole that good either. Okay, let's talk. Let's take our first set of questions. Bunch of super chats piling up, and some other regular questions. As we've been doing yeah. lately, we've we've switched our format just a little bit to take all take questions in bunches rather than just jumping in every once in a while with questions. Mm -hmm. Seems a little a little more organized this way. A little bit. First question is one with no name uh, says, "What are the chances of Bran becoming the new Night King via the mark he received from the Night King touching his bare arm?" Looks like Azor Aharia could have been protected by her clothing. Yeah. First of all, yes. Big ups on on that name. I like calling her Azor Aharia. And I also agree with the clothing thing. I mean, we don't know how Night King's touch works. We don't know if it works on, you know, like it's different. His touch, you know, whether she's, whether the thing is dead or not. I don't know. There's definitely a chance for some sort of little epilogue type thing with Brand Night King's mark. But what do you guys think? Mm -hmm. think that'll do it go anywhere? I, I don't think so. Okay. But I'm going gonna, gonna to go out on a limb and say I don't think so. But if it happens, I'll roll with that too. But uh, mm -hmm. my my gut reaction is I, I think that that was it, and I'll go into why based on thematically later into the episode. But okay, and LG, yeah, pretty I'm pretty much the same. I think that um, the Night King's actual creation was probably I mean we saw it, it was a bit more complex than that. Although we don't know, you know, whatever the mechanism he used was he used to turn. Craster's sons um, into his companions, but um, you know, like Shea said, I, I would roll with it if that's what happened, but oh, thinking probably not. Cool. All right, next super chat is from Strange TV for my favorite podcasters. Keep up the good work. See y'all next year. Yes, my friend, very nice to meet you out there. All three of us enjoyed your presence and we're glad you're coming back. It was great times mm -hmm. and uh, you were you fit right in. <laughs> Uh, super chat from Miska D, no question. Thank you very much. Uh, from uh, Matthias Bosveld, apologize if I said your name wrong. He says, great, home late and able to watch live from Holland. Isn't much of the criticism based on the fact that the predictions turned out to be wrong? 
I'd say part of it. Like some of it is. I don't think yeah. all of it is. Yeah, though. not all of it. There's a lot of fair criticisms for yeah. sure. Uh, we had mm-hmm. several. Um, I had fair criticisms that I felt less strongly later, realized I didn't care that much <laughs> about. I cared about right <laughs> afterwards. And then ultimately I was like, this doesn't really matter. Yeah. And when you see everybody arguing so much, it's kind of like, do I really want to add to that? Well, I did, but (laughs) that's my point earlier, but maybe I shouldn't have. Um, Yeah, I didn't, I don't think I got in a single, I guess I got in a slight argument with you, Aziz, in the car, and I just stopped talking. (laughs) I don't remember what that was about. (laughs) Exactly. It was something so unimportant. That's why I stopped talking. I was like, I don't even care about. Good call. (laughs) It was like, we were just, we were arguing about whether the battle, like, whether it was realistic for characters to have died right then. And you were saying that, they always do that in all oh, TV yeah. shows. And I was like, yeah, you're right, but it still bothered me. Yeah, okay. Pushed yeah, back. that's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. I, could, I definitely can't ever, I will never, or never should never tell someone that not to like something. But or like, to like, so something, I, I was know? critical of that, and I, I predicted characters would die, and they didn't die, but I wasn't criticizing because my predictions were wrong, just yeah. because I really think that those characters should have died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's also a double kind of a, a double whammy here, because a lot of people are making predictions based on book expectations. And so when your <clears> prediction <throat> is wrong and the book, stuff doesn't make the show it's kind of doubly disappointing and mm-hmm. i think maybe what mattis is getting at here too is there's definitely some people that really really i don't know they get kind of attached to their predictions you know we don't really get that attached to our predictions around here we like to just throw out a bunch of them and say hey look at all these fun possibilities and uh you know when they don't happen or do we sometimes pat ourselves in the back or say we were wrong and that's eh, not a big deal but I sometimes people get really attached to their predictions, and it can it can be annoying when they don't when they don't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think, Lady Gwen? Is that do you have a, a take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think there there are there's criticism. There are criticisms that I had immediately afterwards, which I definitely moderated on after watching rewatching. Uh, I had a lot more of a nuanced point of view, but I still have I think valid criticisms, and you make a good point that it's sometimes hard for us that read the books very deeply to separate the books in the show or to remember what has been in the show that, you know, from the books, that sort of thing. But the valid kind of criticisms, um, you know, which uh, I'll talk more later about some of my, my disappointments in the portrayals of Sansa um, that have to do not so much with the, the, you know, the book material, but just the way the show has actually portrayed her and, you know, some of the things that maybe were uh, missed opportunities, even mm. just strictly going by the show. So right that's on. the sort of stuff that's valid, right? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> cool. Well, well said. Um, next super chat is from B Word. How do people think the long night was ended before? Could it come again? Could the children have made more Night King warriors? Well, as for the first two questions, really, we're going to get into that a little bit later. So I think we'll hold off on addressing that. Yeah, we will. Um, But the last question, I don't know about more Night King warriors. The way it seems to have been done in the show is Night King made everyone after him, maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the way they spelled it out, if, you know, the original, it's like the vampire thing. Kill the original vampire and all the ones die. But... Mm -hmm that might be a small plot hole here. Like how did they defeat night King and banish him to the point where he could come back? Cause this wasn't a banishing. This is like that dude's dead, <laughs> you know? <He's> dead. <laughs> so I don't know the way it's set up. It seems like the long night is just done for, but which maybe is an argument for why people theorize about night King, not really being completely gone or yeah. being a misdirect, which like I said, I can understand. Yeah. 
He repops in the north in his uh, his home base. Yeah, yeah, he's just minus one health. Like. Yeah, he, has, he has more lives. Yeah. <laughs> he has an he extra has, guy. It has to happen over a thousand times before finally, finally. <laughs> Four blasts mean, or three blasts mean the others are coming. Four blasts means the Night King has repopped. Yeah. Like, damn it. You hear that music? That's the Night King got another life sound. Damn it. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing because if he was defeated in the past, then it was he was defeated in a way that didn't kill him, which is kind of hard to, yeah, like what happened? Mm -hmm. So that is the kind of thing that we could very much expect the prequel show to get into if it's mm -hmm. uh, picked up, which mm -hmm. we can't get too excited about it because it may not happen. But um, mm -hmm. I think it's got a very good shot. Very good shot. From Dornish Dan, what good is the depository of the human experience if no one can access it? How to make brand less cryptic? Good question. Um, yeah, you, it's a, it feeds into what is Bran going to do now, and and what's his role going to be? Is he just going to like send ravens down there and spy on King's Landing? Because well, that's something, <laughs> but 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 that doesn't really answer this question at all. Yeah, what is his? Um, how are people going to access these human memories? Is he going to be kind of like a dude sitting around, like ask the ask the Green Seer? You know, comes to hold council every once in a while and just sits there being wise, or I don't know. What do you think, uh, Lady Gwen? Um, hmm. Well, I, I mean, I'd like to see, I don't really know what they're going to do with Bran. I mean, this is, this is some, one of the things that kind of troubles me, um, how to make him not only less cryptic, but relevant, um, you know, once this, this experience has passed, um, he doesn't seem like he's going to be, you know, sitting there spouting wisdom to everyone. He's doesn't, not really that kind of character. So, um, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm kind of I'm taking, as far as the show is concerned, definitely taking a wait and see. Yeah. Hmm. Good question, Dornish Dan. You threw us for yes. a loop on that one. We'll have to, we'll have to, maybe you have to come back to that. To think, I, I keep thinking about just the idea of bittersweet endings and the destruction of humanity destroying itself, which again, we'll go into later. Just hmm. Brand makes it all this way. He does all this and he just still ends up just dying. Hmm. He's, Maybe he's able to pass some things on, you know, they can write some books. He told Tyrion that story, he maybe said some other things, but ultimately by the end of the series, like the end of the show, he's been killed. No, I don't, I don't know if that's what I think strongly, but as of where the show, and I don't know that that's what I think the show, I mean, the books will do, but where the show has Bran, it's hard for me to imagine him anywhere, really. Hmm. I can't see a place for him. Okay. From Of Wolf and Raven. Is it possible the Night King's soul is now in the dagger, similar to how Nissa Nissa's soul entered Lightbringer? Could we see Cersei stabbed and turn Night's Queen? Mm, that seems a bit too uh, maybe high magic for, or, you know, because they haven't, it's not necessarily foreshadowed. I don't know that they've shown the, the, the soul thing as a major plot point in the show. It's kind of referenced uh, as a part of the prophecy. But... I like this idea. I think it's a neat idea, but I'm kind of cynical on its chances of happening in the show. What do, mm -hmm. what do y'all think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, um, I kind of like the idea, but this it almost seems to me like one of those times when we we are looking for more um, sort of complexity in the show because we're used to how deeply complex the books are, and mm -hmm. like you said, they they haven't really set anything like that up or you know any precedent or um, so, yeah, I mean, it, the, the thought of it is creepy as heck, but I don't know. I don't, I wouldn't expect that much. <laughs> I don't think we have enough time. 
Yeah, it's an interesting idea for the concept that I think it applies to the books nicely because we definitely get, you know, you guys have covered Valerian Steel on your in your show. And there's mm -hmm. it's not just a theory. It's almost evidence, almost solid evidence at this point that it takes human sacrifice to make Valerian Steel. And uh, that's a similar concept that if you need a dead person or a human sacrifice to that's a euphemism for needing their for their soul going into it in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, there's there's some there's some I don't think it's going to play out exactly this way. But the idea, the concept is is uh, very interesting and definitely applies to the books in some way. Mm -hmm. The Prince That Wasn't Promised, three different super chats. Thank you very much. That's very generous. Sorry, I'm late. Had mod duties on Kyle's stream for the realm. Hit that like button, folks. Starting to think Kyburn creates more White Walkers somehow. Well, I'll start off by saying thank you and shout out to Azora Hype. That's Kyle, our friend uh, over there in Canada, where it's uh, also kind of cold right now. <laughs> uh, probably no one's going to kill the Night King of Canada, make it warm anytime soon. But it's, you know, it's April, it's May, so it's warming up. Now... As far as Kyburn goes, God, this really interesting book-wise. Do you, I mean, is Kyburn really going to stop at one undead creature? Maybe, but you could definitely see him kind of wanting to make more. Uh, I don't know about White Walker beings, but more undead. Mm -hmm. What do y'all think? Is that uh, it's kind of like hard to think of who he could animate? But there's, you know, we're gonna. I mean, see he's, he's fascinated by it, you know. <laughs> we all wanted to see Alaria in the same scene. Yeah, well. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> if he really wants to uh you know get make some, some badass undead, he needs to go on over to um to Skagos and get some uh, undead unicorn goat things. That now that's <laughs> that's fearsome. <laughs> okay, let's see. Next question. Vampirus 99, book versus show continuity issue. D&D never discussed history of the crypts and the swords of dead Stark Lords. When the dead rise in the show, it makes set, it makes House Stark look really dumb. It's like, doesn't House Stark of all houses know better than not to bury their dead? We actually brought this up in our Crypts of Winterfell episode. It's kind of funny. Like, of all the, they're the only houses, <laughs> like of all the houses that shouldn't, so I'm not sure it's even just a show problem. It's just kind of a little odd to me in the first place. There's a couple of things there. One is the idea that out of that long of a period of time, that there wouldn't be anything there unless they were mummified. However, yeah. in the behind the scenes, the game revealed they talked specifically about wanting to make sure that whatever whites came out of the crypts looked mummified, mm -hmm. as if the Starks were, you know, doing that, mm -hmm. which is a, a thought of its own. Um, two is the theory or the idea that people have had that there is some sort of warding or magic or something going on in the crypts of Winterfell. They have their swords that there is a reason why, like that the Starks down in the crypts of Winterfell are safe mm -hmm. from this yeah. exact situation perhaps. Okay. So I think there's a couple of angles you could think about this from. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. I do think that whatever happens on in the books, is going to be a little more interesting than, than what happened in, in the show. I don't think it was uninteresting, but it wasn't, I don't think it was one of the better, see, the action part of it. No, the, the, it was not nearly as bad as I thought it would look. I thought, I mean, I, you, if you're <laughs> listening to the show, you remember me worrying about, like, skeleton whites as yeah, a, as, silly, yeah. as as mm -hmm. there was during the, you know, Jojen death scene. I was picturing that all over again. And, it, I mean, they didn't do that, but it also was pointless, basically, entirely, just utterly pointless. And 
Uh, yeah. Have y'all seen the social media post going around with the picture of the the girl that kind of looked like Shireen? And they're like, she didn't do anything. She didn't Hila. defend the Crips. <laughs> what a liar that little yeah. girl. <laughs> <laughs> She didn't die, which we all predicted. Yeah. That's so, true, right? Yeah. Talk about <laughs> subverting <so> expectations. Right. <laughs> we really wanted that little girl to die. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, she'll just die next episode. Like a loose stone's going to fall on her head. And it's like, oops. Oh, um, sorry about that one. <laughs> <laughs> from Fred Targaryen's Uncle Daddy. Still one of the better names. Yeah, he uh, says, and this is addressed to me, are we going to talk about Sam wimping out or is Ashea too big of a Sam fan to cover that? This is exactly why I love Sam Tarly. You clearly do not understand Sam <laughs> fans if you don't understand that Sam, you know, is 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 George R. R. Martin. He is the reader, you know, like uh, the average fan. We are not amazing fighters. If we were in this scene, I would be shocked to see you, Fred Targaryen's Uncle Daddy, do any better than this. I don't know. And I would do a I hell of a lot worse than Sam did right I think here. Fred Targaryen's <laughs> Uncle Daddy would kick some ass, but hey, kick some ass, we'll, yeah. we'll see. But and so that is my rebuttal to that, is yeah. that mm-hmm. in seeing that, I was even more endeared to Sam, and I loved him even yeah. more, like... Of course he wimped out. And that's why they started with yeah, him, too. Like, the exactly. first person's perspective we get is right. the most, like, the person who would most, like, be us if we were in that spot. The, yeah, like, exactly the terrified, like, <laughs> I want to help, but am I really capable? Yeah, which is, uh... <laughs> So. And I want to say that was not my impression at all. Like every time I saw Sam, all I thought was, oh, my God, he's being so brave because yeah. you know who Sam is, you know. And so for him yeah. to even be there and not in the crypts when he had been specifically released to go hide yeah. uh, with the other non-fighters for him to take that step and be there. Yeah. I thought it was brothers. Yeah. It was very important. I thought that they started us off with this long tracking. I mean, it was a one shot too, which is by the way, I appreciate the camera work there. Mm, Very, very nice. Um, But like him walking through Winterfell and he's kind of out of sorts and breathing Mm -hmm. hard. It puts the viewer immediately off kilter. You know, it's just, it's very powerful and a very good way to start the episode off. And Mm -hmm. very meaningful. And and it bookends really nicely with, okay, so Sam is this kind of, you know, he's not, uh, doesn't have the, the cut of a warrior, you know, he doesn't have a warrior's physique or whatever you want to say, and nor does he have a warrior's attitude, but it goes back to season one, episode one. You can't be brave if you're not afraid. And we get this portrayal of a guy who's a lot like us, and then we get the same portrayal of someone who's not at all like Sam, who's just as terrified and just as helpless, Sandor. That dude's a huge man. Like a minute ago, he was standing out in the front. He was shoving his way. I'm going to be in the front. But then he's faced with something that he's I mean, we cut as well. I have to say, I mean, when we don't cut, we have the one shot and it it transitions perfectly from Sam to Tyrion Mm -hmm. and how he's coping. He is going down to the crypts. He's grabbing some wine. He sees, you know, Bran and Theon and they're looking at them. This is a group of people that they have to be scared too. It's setting the stage of of, of people in general who are are afraid Mm. going into this battle. Right on. Good point. Um, from Danelle Peoples, RIP House Mormont and all our theories. <laughs> yeah, House Mormont really took a beating in this one. Two named characters from House Mormont go down. And well, the two of two. So yeah, uh, that's not the that's not the best for them. Hopefully there's a Mormont cousin out there that can take over and keep it going, but I'm kinda not so sure they'll they'll bother to cover that, but <laughs> Uh, from Miskadi, Night King Essence re-entered Werewoods. They had to meet at Winterfell Tree. Night King didn't try hard to get Bran before he crossed the wall. 
Uh, he sort of tried. Not, you know, he went to the the cave and and killed the three eyed raven, and then sent uh, his whites chasing after them after the hold the door moment. Uh, maybe he could have tried a little harder, but mm, the idea of his essence reentering the werewoods is kind of fits into the whole like Night King repops. Maybe not repops, but his his soul or his being is still in there somewhere. Maybe it could manifest somehow or affect. Green Seer's going forward, like Bran, that would be some sort of way to maybe do an epilogue thing where Bran is still maybe influenced by the Night King from beyond. That would actually be, uh, you know, a sort of, it wouldn't exa- it wouldn't be Bran equals Night King, but it would at least satisfy some of the, the, the foreshadowing that people are seeing when they use that theory, which I don't agree that Bran is Night King, but if he had some sort of like, Night King streak in him that would at least satisfy people who have that theory because you know, it would at mm-hmm. least be in that ballpark. Trey Mackey, what if Kyburn already has made an army of the undead and the whole time Brandon Company were seeing the wrong undead army? Whoa. I don't think that works because we see the army and we see them marching through the cold. You know, they were definitely in the north. But it would be cool if, but I do expect Kyburn to have surprises. I'm not, I kind of doubt there's a hidden undead army, but maybe, but something, you know, I do think he'll have some surprises. Any, any thoughts on maybe, do you guys have any thoughts on what he might do or any surprises he might have? Something. I mean, he's clearly fascinated with this idea of, you know, reanimated dead. Uh, we, we, they, they took a long camera shot of his face kind of, you know, observing this, you know, so uh, wouldn't be surprised to see him be doing something unexpected. Hmm. Maybe not a whole army. Okay. And from Warlock Jelly, 666. Thank you, Warlock Jelly. We're, since we're, we talked about thank you, Satan, earlier, well, we can thank Satan again for, the, <laughs> for that. <laughs> Did Bran tell Arya when she needed to stab him? As in, I assume that means tell Bran when she needed to stab the Night King. And uh, Maybe? I don't think so. I think that Arya was pushed towards her destiny by Melisandre there near the end. And she kind of grasped what was being said. And I don't think there was communication there, but there is a little, but the timing is awfully perfect. You know, like it's almost like Theon's needed to buy Bran two more minutes for Arya to get there, you know, Uh, something like that. But I don't think it was a direct thing, but um, I'm not sure. Lady Gwen, do you have any thoughts on that? No, not really. Okay. Um, I think she just, I think she knew, you know. She knew what she she had to do. And her, yeah. (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about Arya more. Uh, she does it all. <laughs> we, if we had more time, and in the future we may be able to do this, what we kind of wanted to do is just go through some of these characters' full arcs and kind of look at how Melisandre's words play out. Uh, obviously, they didn't plan all this in super far in advance, but a lot of it's going to land even in retrospect. And I, I want to give. D&D some credit that other people are not giving them. And I think it's kind of unfair that we're not giving them because some people complain and I don't think it's wrong to complain about this. I just take a different look at it. They say that Melisandre saying, telling Arya in season three that she's going to close many eyes isn't foreshadowing for her killing Night King because they hadn't thought of, they hadn't decided who would kill Night King yet. That's fine. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to, I disagree, but I won't tell you you're wrong. The reason I disagree is because this is what George does. George uses the gardener style, leaves things open, gives himself options later. I think this is what they were doing. They're like, oh, we're not sure who's going to kill Night King. Let's, for all we know, they had it narrowed down. And they had it down to Arya, John, point, and Danny. They could have been aware, hey, Arya is going to kill some White Walkers. 
Like they could have known yeah. that. Or like some whites. And they, they knew safely blue eyes is a safe assumption. And then they're like, hey, Night King does have blue eyes. Like you said, gardening approach. Yeah. But mm-hmm. while still the prophecy or whatnot would still have been true regardless of whether she killed Night King or not. Yeah. So this doesn't alleviate them from like a lot of these other criticisms that they've fairly received. But I think going after them for doing gardener style stuff kind of like George does is kind of unfair because, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same technique here. Lady Glenn, what do you think about that? Exactly the same. When I, I, you know, that my exact thought when I saw that sort of criticism was what you said. George does this all the time, specifically, you know, in referring back to things from the earlier books. I mean, he he definitely takes things that he might not have necessarily planned and uses them, incorporates them into his foreshadowing or into his character arcs. And um, I don't have a problem with it at all, as long as it makes sense. And this, it made that made sense. Yeah. And I think to be fair, he's better at it than they are, but, but he's not perfect at it. There's a lot of false foreshadowing in book one. Yeah. A lot, you know, because he changed his mind on a lot of things. Shadow like a king, look like a king, whatever. Yeah. There's a lot of it. So uh, we, you know, Fair's fair here, I think. <laughs> yeah. So if we're thinking through Arya's whole arc as a character from the beginning to end, that you know that's hard to do because that's eight seasons of Arya scenes, and we're not going to be able to remember everything. It's we couldn't possibly get all that together in, in seventy-two hours. But it's a fun ex- thinking thought exercise. We go back to um, you know just thinking of how it plays out in this episode only. Obviously, her whole arc to become an assassin is obviously pretty damn crucial to her success here. But just within this episode. The back and forth, I think, is pretty cool with the subjects. First of all, she's on Archer on the walls, and she shoots a, a, a white that's, a, like, maybe about to grab Sandor. It may not have, you know, it might be a stretch to say she saved him there, because that one white may not have killed him. But it was it was something. And then he later returns the favor, saving her. And they had both saved each other and fought for each other before this episode, as we know. So, uh, you know, it's pro- she's probably not quite going to be so powerful in the book. She's a... Uh, she's, really badass in the show and i would guess she would be a little more limited in the books but maybe not maybe she'll just be this this ultra killer we'll see she was she definitely had the simian staria eyes thing going there <laughs> uh lady gwen let's 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 get some thoughts from you on this there's uh you've got some great notes here yeah i i am not gonna lie when you know as this played out in front of us on that giant screen i stood up and yelled dark sister (laughs) she and i wasn't referring to the sword although you know thoughts about that later uh book related as i'm sure we all did but in my mind in that moment she was just the dark sister Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. and i thought of this scene in from storm of swords where she sees the ghost of high heart who says to her i see you wolf child blood child i thought it was the lord who smelled of death you're cruel to come to my hill cruel i gorged on grief at summer hall i need none of yours be gone from here dark heart be gone and I feel very strongly, as I did at the time, gallows years ago, that that's the thematic origin of the the things Melisandre said to Arya in the Riverlands uh, that we were just talking about. It's you know they they didn't have the ghost of High Heart in the show, so they they kind of like they always do. They they kind of merge some of those words into um, the words that Mel said to Arya. So you know she's she's the dark heart, the dark sister. Um, whether that relates to the sword, maybe we we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have some a question. I've seen a bunch of people 
commenting on this and Lord Commander George Golden asks about what the showrunners had revealed regarding their decision to have Arya kill the Night King. So we have the quote here. They said she seemed like the best candidate provided we weren't thinking of her in that moment. We hope to avoid the expected. Jon Snow has always been the hero, the one who's been the savior, but to us, it didn't seem right. So question is, does this suggest a substantive change from the book arc? I mean, I, I watched the whole their whole statement, not so not so extended beyond that quote. And for what it's worth, I kind of tend to believe it does, or it's or it might anyways, suggest that they did their own thing there. Mm. Yeah. I don't think it has to preclude that. And frankly, I don't really want to know for sure. I want to be guessing. I, if there's any room for, uh, you know, doubt in their statement, I want to choose to, you know, see where that, that can lead me. So let's say, so let's go down that rabbit hole. Though it's less likely, I, I think some creators sometimes are willing to lie to avoid spoilers. And the end of this series in particular is a situation where they might, they, they might, might be willing to muddy the waters. That's yeah. less likely though. But another possible way that this statement isn't just a massive change to Arya's arc is, say, if they were told some bullet points, like mm -hmm. John and Danny bring forces together to stop the Long Night. Amidst this, so-and-so, including Arya, fight others and definitely not ice spiders as big as hounds. <laughs> John and or Danny die, and they're told other points among that, and they choose yep. to adapt certain things. But they get a lot of the point of that across, you know, in this episode, you know, that yeah. they still hit that. Um, it's like it would be a change in what roles the characters play, but it would still be an example of how they're all heroes. All of them were part of this group effort, which is like the theme that I want to get into that we'll get into going forward. But really... I'm also really curious, you know, John and Danny didn't die in this, you know, battle for the dawn, right? Yeah. So I'm very curious. I mean, I assumed that they would in the books, that I, either one of them or both would. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. And so I'm curious if either one of John or Danny will survive until the end of the show. Because mm -hmm. I could see them, if they decided to subvert expectations here, the tweak they made is not that John and Danny survive to the end, but is that they die in a different situation. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I can see that. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I think um, that's a very good point because really what we've talked about a lot is the sort of bullet points. It's likely that is the information that they've had to go on and they have to fill in the details. And, you know, it, in that case, it wouldn't surprise me if if they took liberties to tell their own story and, you know, take this bullet point and that bullet point. And as long as they hit those notes, uh, they're kind of free to fill in the details as they see fit. And uh, I think it would be, you know, very fitting twist if John or Danny um, I tend to think just one of them um, in particular <laughs> will die before the end. And, um, it, you know, so, you know, we still get that sort of bullet point, but in a different way than we expected. Mm -hmm. Right on. Okay. Yeah. A shout out to uh, co-writer Joe Buckley, who adds a thought here. He uh, doesn't think in the books there will be just this one really pivotal single last battle which I kind of agree with. I could see there maybe being a, a big battle at like Hall, like you, you said, Lady Gwen. But I think he's generally right that either way, 
whether it comes down to one battle, there's going to be a lot of other things that happen before it. It's not just going to be straight to this, you know, the show kind of just bolted straight yeah. to a, a final climactic <sighs> battle without much before it. And of course, we've talked about how they, they just maybe by necessity, they cut out a lot of the, the, the effects of winter, the starvation, mm. the slow freezing of the north and the neck and whatever else is going to happen, the starvation, the disease, all that horror, all that fun stuff. Uh, so multiple fronts, multiple locations, because also, Joe, as Joe points out, it's a bit of an issue to have too many POVs in one place from a writing perspective. Like that can give yeah. some little, maybe create a little some bit of an issue, but he does it. I mean, he yeah. still does it. I mean, he did it at the beginning of a game of Thrones and he's doing it in the beginning of the winds of winter or yes. going forward, you know? Yeah, you're right. At the beginning of Winterfell, there's a whole bunch of characters there. They split apart and they pretty split apart, fast. And they come back but... together and they split apart. And they, so he doesn't necessarily have to whittle them down. That's true. So another related idea here is since we're, we've talked a lot about, and we need to talk more about it later. Night King's deeds in the show having a lot to do with what we expect from Euron in the books, maybe even down to bringing, you know, including things like bringing down the wall. There's some theories out there that I kind of like that need some more exploring that involve the Night King or uh, Euron taking over the others, like controlling them somehow using the Horn of Winter or something like that. Yeah, I mean, well, it's, it's, just not to get too into the weeds with this, but I mean, for one, the there's theory that Sam in Old Town has the Horn of Winter. A. Yeah. Okay. Part two of that is Euron coming to Old Town has reason to potentially get this horn. So that's part of the idea with that. And then you have all of the themes of Euron being associated with, you know, um, you know, green dreams potentially and uh, you know, Werewood Network and all of that, which they are associated with darkness and a little spooky. So you can get where people get into some theories about this. But what I want to go with this is, you know, we, we've long talked about the idea that Arya could acquire Dark Sister, thus having Valyrian steel. With that, what she does with that, you know, there's no Night King. So right. my question is, do we think she'll use it to be killing others or someone else similarly important yeah. and epic mm. like Euron? And it, like, there can be someone important and epic that is involved in bringing about the Long Night, but it could also just be someone important. You could even see it going very similarly, like shockingly similar if if this, it's maybe a little tinfoil because like, we're building a theory on a theory, but yeah. if Euron controls the White Walker somehow. It's possible he just unleashes them yeah. and, you know, benefits from the chaos. But if he controls them somehow, killing him would mean they're no longer in his control. And then they're maybe less of a threat or less, yeah. I don't know. Sure. It's a lot of different possibilities. But you could kind of, you could maybe squint and see Arya killing Euron and it having a similar sort of effect as kind of mm -hmm. loosening his hold on these magical forces or something like that. Mm -hmm. Eh, you know, we'll see. It's fun to think about. The high magic stuff's awfully hard to predict. Mm -hmm. And uh, the thing that gets to me as well is that there's also been a, a long theories about, uh, you know, Euron and Bran and their differences between them, similarities in their tales, you yeah. know? And the idea mm -hmm. of this being Night King and Bran, you know, opposed with each other and mm -hmm. Arya being involved is very similar to like that. To uh, you're on in this position, but you also think about 
theories about the wall, like the Night King, two things that he has done are bring the wall down, you mm-hmm. know, and like, well, one, that's what we were theorizing that Euron could potentially do. So yeah. that, that's pretty And the dragon, neat. the other big And he's thing. taken control of a dragon. Well, guess what? That's the other thing that people are theorizing that Euron could do with Dragonbinder. Right. That's hardly even a theory. It's like, he says he has yeah, a horn that can control dragons. Like, so whether just, he well, does them both, we don't know, but it gives his, what he says he can do a little bit more credence yeah. to me. And it shows like, mm-hmm. that, it backs up the theory of like, maybe he won't control the others, but if he wants to unleash them, well, he flies that dragon up there, takes down the wall, and, well, I don't know, Prophet <laughs> comes next somehow. Euron's version of Prophet, anyway. And, uh, you know, it might be harder to kill Euron if he's a dragon rider, but hey, that didn't save Night King. You gotta, you gotta, you can't ride your dragon 100% of the time. Joe Buckley writes that he kind of likes the idea of all the Stark kids getting Valyrian steel. You could see maybe, um... Some of them, you know, you can see how that might line up. Maybe Sansa won't. She doesn't really have the warrior arc going. But, hey, maybe. She could always just carry one around for decoration and look cool. Yeah, I mean, she just needs (laughs) to have someone protecting her that has one, for example. You know, having Brienne there with her or something is could be effectively the same. And, and Brienne probably won't be wielding any swords either, but maybe yeah. indirectly he will. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's also where we get into, you know, with Dark Sister and with who has Valyrian steel and who does this sort of thing and whether Arya does it or not. You know, some people theorize, again, that Jon gets Dark Sister or that Mira yeah. gets it or brings it around. And if you're looking at Dark Sister <laughs> as a stand-in weapon that will be used to help stop the Long Night... Then who wields it could be relevant. Uh, yeah. But I, a lot of this is wanting to leave all of our listeners, I think, with something to think about and ruminate on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we earlier we touched on touched on the Night yeah. King's touch and Arya, whether Arya was touched, probably not Arya. But we uh, we it, it brings us to the concept of Craster and the you know, which is a book show thing and the touch of the others and the giving of children and how they turn into others. That's still very much unexplored and unknown. And uh, there could be a lot more. Well, there should be a lot more detail in the books, but we wonder if this is how it works. Is there some, I don't know about a, a homing mark, like what Night King did with Bran, but is it the same kind of thing where they have some sort of powerful touch that converts this baby into an into a white walker i i don't know but that's not out of line at all as a possibility so moving back that's a little bit off topic for aria let's get back into rein things back in with aria lady gwen uh, an important quote a famous quote that we know from game of thrones that we love yeah, Arya. She, th- she thinks many things after her initial training with Sirio. She has all these little, you know, sound bites that are always in her head. The one that struck me most deeply in this episode is fear cuts deeper than swords, because we see her afraid. I mean, we don't see Arya afraid. Probably haven't seen her afraid in years and years and years. But here we see her really be afraid for the first time. But out of that fear, she still finds that place inside where she can be calm as still water, another one of her phrases. And she is silent as a mouse, which is another one that <laughs> is in her arc during the, her time at Heron Hall. Uh, and then the best one of all, what do we say to the God of Death? Not today. Not today. <laughs> uh, the Night King, he's literally the God of Death, isn't he? Mm-hmm. So, Pretty you know, much. it's just that whole series where we see so many of her sayings in action uh, is really 
it was really compelling and, and I think very, very clear that they were playing out a lot of those different themes for her. And I want to say that I have so many Tolkien plots surrounding <laughs> Arya. I mean, the, there's a huge one where she's got this Eowyn from Lord of the Rings uh, killing the, the Witch King at Pelennor Fields, uh, which, you know, is a very compelling comparison. But, you know, when we talk about the Night's King, we have to remember other things from Tolkien. You know, the, the Witch King was killed, and incidentally, when he died, all of his magic died with him. But there was still a big bad, and so they still had to kill Sauron, who also... Uh, once they finally defeated him, all of his magic died. So it's very similar vibe to the Night King. Uh, and also to point out, this occurred to me kind of a few minutes ago that we saw in you know in the Lord of the Rings, Sauron had been defeated before, and he came back. So you know we were kind of puzzling over how the others were defeated before, and now they're back. Um, you know, this could be some sort of influence in George's mind where he's he's got some kind of high magic thoughts that we don't really understand yet. <laughs> <laughs> True that. <laughs> so, Shay, you found something kind of funny, didn't you? Um, yeah, I did. Sorry, I meant to say. Oh, I wanted to say something to your point about Arya as well saying felt it was maybe you know communicated and we've been predicting this we've thought this on our show for a long time about Arya killing the night king and that's with the night king not being a character in the books and without with us mm -hmm. not maybe entirely thinking about the implications of her doing something like that right i think it's very funny that kit harrington himself john snow said during the game revealed the 40 minute special he said he would have bet thousands that he killed night king <laughs> confident that it was would have been him um, whereas again there just isn't a figure like that necessarily to kill for someone to be that savior figure so like when you say when you think about their their quote saying like to us Jon Snow is always the hero he was the savior none of like you know he's, they're saying that they wanted there to maybe they're saying that they wanted there to be the hero or the savior and they thought that would be Jon Snow, but they wanted to subvert that. Whereas George is like, well, actually, none of them are really like <laughs> the savior, you know, yeah, this is kind of what I get simpler at version of that subversion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's pretty funny. Even Kit thought he would kill my king. I mean, it's a, <laughs> not a bad bet for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. so let's see here. And that's a great a bad example. bet for whoever's on the other side <laughs> of that bet. They were like, I don't know if I should trust you. You're on this show in this role. Yeah, they're going to bet against Kit Harrington about what's going to happen mm -hmm. in Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, so that's a great segue, what Ashay just said about, you know, there not being one central or there being many versions and how smaller characters play really key roles. So let's talk about Sandor and Beric. This is a good example of Mel and Bran's talk. Remember, Mel and Bran both talk about this. Everything you did brought you to where you needed to be. That kind of same basic language of everything led you to this point. Very zen, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, Lady Gwen, what what did this? Uh, how did this land for you? This was. I, I thought they hit this note really 
very well several times throughout the episode you know it's often tied with a redemption arc of sorts i mean it's it's theon it's uh melisandre herself uh it's even jorah to some extent and sandor they're all there kind of you know playing out their their heroic arc if you will and this this sort of thought or idea that whatever you did in the past here's where you were meant to be really resonated throughout uh the episode two as well as this episode right on yeah mm-hmm. they both saved each other several times we pointed out earlier and uh, mm-hmm. and before this episode and mm-hmm. it's really cool and his panicking at the fire pit is obviously a call back to the blackwater right mm-hmm. yeah and, yeah uh, yeah uh but he snaps out of it to save Arya. Yeah, there was no Arya at the Battle of the Blackwater for him to snap out of. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, and he's just a different person now. This is the transition that was really highlighted with a lot of characters in episodes one and two, dancing with their ghosts and all that. And he fights for her, he said, and he fought for her again. It was the really mm-hmm. most important thing. Yeah. But what about uh, Sandor Sansa? Are you still holding out some hope for that? Yeah, I'm still waiting. I honestly... Uh, I want to shout out our friend Mikhail Schick, who sent me a message the other day and said, I think Sandra belongs to Arya now. Um, we were just kind of joking back and forth about that because I'm very disappointed that uh, there has not been a Sandor Sansor. Sansa, Sansor. Sansor. <laughs> <laughs> there hasn't been that moment, but. I think it's very important to remember that his tale isn't done yet. One of the main reasons I think none of us thought he would die in this episode is because his arc isn't done. He's still got unfinished business with his brother. That's going to bring him back to King's Landing, back to the end of the show and whatever happens there. So I think there's still time. We have to, you know, this is one of those things where we can talk about what the books versus the show, you know, he's clearly tied very closely to both Arya and Sansa in the books, but the show didn't ignore his connection with Sansa in earlier seasons. So given the fact that even though sometimes they do seem to drop things, I think in a lot of these big pieces, they do tend to um, kind of, you know, pull it together in the end. So I do think that there's going to be some kind of resolution, even if it's not the one we want to see before he goes off on his unfinished business with his brother right on Barrick is harder to figure of course because his relevance to the books at this point is a lot harder to figure given that he's been dead for quite a while and that there's no Stoneheart, and that Barrick didn't end up passing his life force on to anyone in this episode which was a, a common prediction we liked it but you know obviously mm-hmm. didn't come to pass um, but you know what? Maybe we shouldn't have made that prediction because the way they did it in the show, it was always Thoros that, that, that called, summoned the magic. In the book, it was kind of like mm-hmm. it was a little more ambiguous because uh, yeah. it, it did seem like <clears throat> that Beric asked Thoros to revive her yeah. instead. So even in the books, it sort of leans more towards Thoros being the, the, yeah. the catalyst. So maybe we yeah. never should have thought saw that. And once Thoros is dead, maybe that idea should have been mm. off the table. Right. But he yeah. certainly played a huge role here. Um, yeah. Convincing John that Night King was the key, the one who got Clegane back in the fight and pointing out and then saved Arya's life himself. So I don't know. He's a lot like kind of how like Sandor and Brienne are sort of bookend characters in a lot of ways. They're they're more like knights in, than, than knights are in a lot of ways. They both protected the Stark daughters um, and Melisandre and Beric are these kind of 
zealotrous figures that kind of never, well, maybe Melisandre wavered a little bit, but basically they never wavered. They had their confidence the whole time and it was really important to the morale of the other characters. And this is, goes to what Ashea was saying, like all these characters playing their part. Morale is hugely important. And especially when, like we don't, it's hard to, to un underestimate just the pressure that these characters were under. We try to compare this battle to like real world battles. And it's like, well, when has any battle in the real world, you know, the stakes are, mm -hmm. if one side loses, the world ends. You know, like, <laughs> that's never been a thing in the real world. So, uh, like, the, so, like, what kind of pressure does that put on the soldiers there? Uh, so, yeah, morale's important. And uh, this is also very important for the books in terms of characters dying to fulfill their destinies. That's something that resonates in the books, too. Like, Jojen, right? Mm -hmm. Like, that's a sad but true one that fits this concept to a T. Uh, he, mm. he's, he's out there saying it. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm going to die soon, etc. He's not the one that needs to be afraid. So how do we think any of this relates to Lady Stoneheart or Book Melisandre? Maybe it does the same thing where she, mm. you know, just decides she's done now and can turn into ash. <laughs> Not this ash, but, you know. <laughs> so what do you think about that, Lady Gwen? you have any thoughts on... Um... Well, yeah, on, on Lady Stoneheart. Just in general. How, you know, just yeah. in general, any of this. The, I mean, Barrack I... Stoneheart, are, uh, characters fulfilling their destiny. Yeah, I, I think that... Some of the things you said about Thoros, you know, he he was the mediator in the books and the show. So, um, with him not there, I you know I think we you know that was something that obviously probably couldn't happen. But you know, in the books, it's noted that this isn't a state that's you know Beric, the state that Beric is in is not something that he's happy to be in. You know, he he passes on his light his gift of life to Lady Stoneheart, mainly because he's sick of being revived. You know, he talks mm -hmm. about that pretty compellingly. And um, given that we're still seeing these sort of elements of the Lady Stoneheart story playing out in the show with Beric still being there or being that, you know, last repository of Thoros's gift, whatever that was, uh, and, and even Jamie's trial in the last episode, I think, is maybe inspired by what we might see in The Winds of Winter with Jamie's Lady Stoneheart trial, that it really gave me a lot of kind of meat to think about what extent Lady Stoneheart is going to have some role to play in Arya's arc. Yeah. Maybe not at that moment, maybe not that far into the story, you know, but by being kind of in the right place at the right time, which is big theme here and it wouldn't surprise me if that thematically you know those two came back together so one thing that relates really strongly to this that's important to mention i think is that uh one we didn't get it in the show and we really thought we would i feel like it's a wasted opportunity the the characters being fit, confronted with undead yeah. versions of themselves you know we, we got mm. it was like that carsey thing was foreshadowing for it was a really common popular prediction i'm really surprised it didn't happen mm. but Lady Stoneheart is a great example of when this, of how this could and will happen in the books, and how it could be way more impactful than just a, a white version of a dead person. Because Arya meeting her undead mother, blah, you know, that's mm. just like, damn, that's got some gravitas to mm. it because she has yeah. this weird relationship that with death, and well before even the whites. Yeah, huh? yeah, it should. Yeah, huh? so she'll warm her up. She's like, warm her up. So that's just, it just, it's hard to predict how such a scene would go, how George could write it. We can't 
like that's where George is going to really have to be at his best because uh, man, the, the the human heart and conflict, fi- meeting your undead mother. Like, what do you do? I mean, <laughs> how do you, conflict. Yeah, how do you begin to write that? So, so let's tease a little bit here about yeah. the prophesied heroes that we're going to talk about in the bonus episode. As you can see, this episode is we're really burning the the candle in this episode. Going, uh, not why we don't have time to cover this in this episode because yeah. we have a lot more to say. Grew a little bit. Um, a little we're thinking we're going to call the episode the Many Faced Azor Ahai, which is a term that we use in our Great Empire of the Dawn episode, actually, for one of our section headers, which is pretty cool. We forgot all about that. Yeah, I went back <laughs> and I was like, "Geez, we called this section this." title and has this great quote so immediately i'm watching the episode big group of people and i'm an emotional and all that but immediately afterwards i just all i can think about is this one quote from the world of ice and fire and um, we can skip the first section of it um but i will i'll start from here from how long you want to read it aziz sure how long the darkness endured no man can say but all agree that it was only when a great warrior known variously as hercoon the hero azora high Yintar, Nefarian, and Eldric Shadowchaser arose to give courage to the race of men and lead the virtuous into battle with his blazing sword Lightbringer, that the darkness was put to rout and light and love returned once more to the world. Okay, so hey, both John and Danny did in fact do this, especially if you look at Lightbringer as dragons or the Night's Watch or a million other thing, you know, whatever your theory is about that. Um, they definitely, definitely gave courage to the race of men and led them into battle. Yeah. Um, also, this is very similar to the idea of the stallion who mounts the world uniting people, which is something else we're going to get really into in our bonus episode. Yeah. So then this isn't the end of the quote, though. Go on, Aziz. Yet the great empire of the dawn was not reborn. For the restored world was a broken place where every tribe of men went its own way, fearful of all the others, and war and lust and murder endured even to our present day. And look, this quote addresses the idea that the ultimate big bad is humanity fighting itself. It isn't about Cersei or Euron or anything like that. It's that they're still fighting themselves. They've stopped the long night. They've kept darkness at bay. And they're still all just going to die. Even like we're like, oh, yay, Grey Worm's alive. He's still just going to die in this these battles to come. The dragons are going to die, etc., etc. Yeah. So the... Big takeaways from this teaser, uh, these great quotes that that get us deeper into the meaning of Azor Ahai and Prince That Was Promised, which wasn't delved into very deeply in the show. And uh, a lot of us book readers kind of just substituted what we know about Azor Ahai and Princess Promised and Stallion of the Mountain of the World for the show because it didn't dive into that. It was kind of like whenever they touched on it, it was for us book readers because they, they, they talked about it so sparingly in the actual show. So it's kind of one of those things that was a consistent nod to book readers, even though it wasn't perfect. But I, I liked it because the way they resolve it here, it actually mm-hmm. lines up pretty well. And as Ashea said, we've got a lot more quotes that yeah. very distinctly point to Azor Ahai. Prince was promised, Stallion Mounts of the World, all these figures are uniters. They're unifiers. They're bringing disparate, they're bringing together people who are warring to, to fight a and common enemy. to get more into it, like the idea that Azor Ahai or something like that, it, it, whatever, the prophecy can be a prophecy, yes, about a uniter, but that the various actual figures that we hear about, you know, Hirkun the Hero or Yintar, that those were actual people 
who were pivotal in stopping yeah. the long night. Yeah. Or they were one person that each culture is by, either. Which like, is also I know, possible, but yeah. again, based on what we saw in this episode, I feel so, we're going to get into a really nice chat about all that. Yeah, it's going to be great. So uh, real quick, Lady Gwen, do you have anything to add to that before we move on? Or, because um, I know you guys have covered uh, this this topic a bit in the past as well. Yeah, I mean, um, nothing specific to add. Uh, you know, we have covered it, like you said. Um, I want to say that I was very energized and interested <laughs> talking with Shea after the episode. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had long chats about it <laughs> into the wee hours of the morning. <laughs> she was fired up. You were fired up. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing like there's like a, I, I'd go up to someone and they'd be like, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I can't believe Arya's days are high. They were kind of bummed or something. And like my eyes just light up, and I'm like, "Have I told you the good word of Azor Ahai is the friends we made along the way?" And I'm just running around. After a while, it was just like, "Preach, girl! Just, yeah. just yeah. here's your chance." Yeah. I, I was, I, I was, yeah, I was telling Aziz, I couldn't sleep. I was so excited about this idea. It's something I've thought about. You know, I mean, the world by some fire came out like what five years ago or something like that, and just this one quote. So all I could think about when I went to the quote and I saw that it, it actually addressed like the the next back half of these this season of the three episodes about the wars <laughs> continuing I was like oh my god this is perfect and like I said there's some other great quotes that we'll have too about like the Roynar's version of events and yeah there's like so that. many quotes that just it's like the same kind of, well, anyway yeah we'll get to yeah, it we're, we're gonna get there we're gushing sorry <laughs> I know everyone I know everyone is on my on the same page as me and is so excited for this episode but <laughs> there's a lot of other stuff to talk about Okay, let's take a quick uh, mid-roll break here. Um, Ashea and I are both wearing a, a nice new pair of headphones here. Look at I might have horses on them. Look at this. It's so cool. Yeah, you do. Yours are – I wish you should pick yours up and show it. I'm wearing the uh, – yeah, here we go. Put it up. This is the the, the Studio Regent. Little horses Look on there. Look how cute. The the Studio nice. Regent is made by Studio Sweden, and it's, uh, it's, it's a premium on-ear model. Uh, it's Im it says impeccable clarity in the instrumental tones. It's got a great sound. I really like it. This is the second version of this. They gave me a pair of these a year or two ago. It was Regent version one. This is Regent version two. I'm very happy with it. Really holds a lot of battery life. Bluetooth is really smooth, and uh, you can take these little caps off. The speaker, the, the speaker headphone caps are removable and interchangeable. It's really, really great pair of headphones. They've lasted a long time, and now I've got uh, the second version. So you can get uh your own pair go to uh historyofwesteros.com there's a link on the right there's also a link in the show notes uh westeros 15 is a bonus code that gets you 15 percent off your purchase from studio sweden and these are really really great headphones folks so check them out also thanks to some of our patrons we have our uh blood riders to thank i want to say thanks to vorsaki wielder of a valyrian steel arak with a dragonbone hilt Koal Koei, called Sunpiercer, is wielder of a dragonbone bow. And Kakava the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. And also a quick shout out to our sellsword captains, who I suppose will be having more to talk about sellsword-wise once the Golden Company gets into this mix. They're kind of uh, hanging out there, waiting to be used. So thanks to Peter Blaze, the Emerald Isle, captain of the Weirwood Wanderers, Long Lives, Quick Deaths, Cold Beer, and Ward Women. Ward Women? Warm Women. <laughs> <laughs> Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide, Resistance is Futile. Kyron Callsbane, Captain of the Stone Shields, The Torrent Breaks Upon the Stone. Hama Hillman, Captain of the Whispering Children, Dead Men Tell No Secrets. 
Shepard, the shepherd of Essos, all men are sheep before the shepherd, heir to the whispering children. Lady Lajara Dajo, the Iron Lily, master archer. Castellan of the Summer Island Keep, arboreal point, captain of the all-female wailing widows, women and children first. Cody, the Crimson, bastard of Bracken, captain of the Red Waste Exiles and recruiter of the Free Folk. Cameron, the Hammer of Hornwood, captain of the English Lions with the motto, Honor is the Reward of Virtue. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, captain of the Shadow Wolves. Our steel is cold, our vengeance colder. And Black Alex Sand, the Bastard of Spears, is leader of the Bermuda Vanguard. Heck yeah, thanks, y'all. Uh, let's say a couple of quick things about Ice and Fire Con real quick. We got our shirts on. We should we should make throw out a quick mention. Um, mm-hmm. Quick shout out to our History of Westeros Facebook mods who banded together to make a sigils panel. It was really cool. I was wearing the sigil shirt on Monday, one of the many sigil shirts. That's Laura. Yeah, which had art by Ed Shear. Art by Ed Shear, lest I, yes, I would be very remiss in not mentioning that. Ed Shear has done some of our dragon art and lots of other great art around the fandom. Uh, so shout outs to our uh, History of Westeros mods that were on that panel. That's Laura, Rebecca, Thomas, and Scott. It's great to see y'all at the con as well. Super fun. Say something about the musical, guys. How good was that? I loved the musical. Um, definitely very moving, very funny. Um, it's, it's, I mean, already you know when knowing the series so well, knowing how Game of Thrones has, has adapted it, gives you another level of appreciation. But then also being friends at the convention with people who are in it is another level. Mm-hmm. So I really, I don't know. There was there was a lot of ways that I was enjoying the musical this year. Right on. Yeah. 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 Me yeah. too. Hmm. And Lady yeah. Two, Lady Gwen. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, to uh, Brian and Tara and Dom and everyone involved, so many people, and the fact that they put that together uh, remotely for the most part, and really only had that, you know, got people together at the con, uh, physically speaking, yeah. and pulled off this absolutely amazing amazing bit of entertainment for yeah. us um, and like, to people in the chat asking they're very likely that they have uploaded it in previous years and they'll upload it this year yeah so that we will once yeah. we get a, a link once we have the ability to share it around <laughs> we will definitely do that and I can also tell you to go uh, Radio Westeros has an Instagram uh, now which we uh, sort of have had for a while but we activated yeah. just for <laughs> the convention so that we could share lots of pictures and we had very good seats for the musical so I was able to upload a lot of pictures of the musical and other fun moments from the convention. So yeah. Meanwhile I'm slacking. We've had just so much to do here since we got home and Honestly, all I could do is work on this Prophecy Heroes stuff, which we ended up pushing mostly out of this episode. But I will have lots of pictures and videos for all of you as well. Uh, so look out on our... I'll share it to the History of Westeros Facebook group. And you were... Uh, perhaps you deserve a title for your performance at yes. uh, the, the con. Maybe we should call you Asharia. <laughs> Asharia. Asharia. Uh, I will say two things. Okay, I was really cheering for there to be more deaths in this episode. And I was really cheering for the idea of a faceless woman uh, winning winning it all there and killing it cuz I won the faceless the faceless man game there at um at uh at the convention. Yeah, there's it's a game basically where you you get a do- there's a dossier everyone who's playing, you get to run around and potentially uh you get to stab other people with a spoon. <laughs> and uh <laughs> it's so it's just a kind of an ongoing game around like I didn't play uh Sean played as well but uh Shea had gotten pretty far in the past but this time all the way and i had the highest kill count That's right. and uh so Shea's i also killer. cosplayed this year as eleanor costain the black bride who was you know the last one standing out of that yeah. so really just a You're lot kidding. of death in my head. 
So you're like, my weekend. why are we trying to invite y'all to a convention where there's all this death? Well, <sighs> you know. Anyway. And next year, I'm planning on being John Kildark, Scarlet Shadow, nice. Heck yeah. all the armor, especially with all my killing. So people will really have to watch out. <laughs> right on. So <laughs> if we're hitting you really hard with FOMO right now, you have another chance. Come see us at Con of Thrones. The, yeah. the, con, the uh, That's in July. So after the season, we get to talk about a completed Game of Thrones. You can hang out with us, maybe have a drink with us, whatever you want. And. Attend panels. And if you happen to... Uh, be on the European side of things. We are going to be at Worldcon and or possibly more likely or TitanCon. Yeah, probably Worldcon, maybe TitanCon. Yeah, and that's in Ireland. That's right. Also, so for Con of Thrones, you can use the discount code History to get five dollars off your ticket purchase. Okay, let's take another set of questions here. We got a bunch more questions built up. A lot of really good questions. Maybe a few that we've covered already, but just good stuff. Let's get to it. Uptown GBV, another person we got to meet for the first time from Twitteros at the con. That was great. Uh, good to see you, buddy. In season seven, Melisandre tells Varus, I have to die in this strange country just like you. I think Mel's death revealed something to show watchers that book readers gleaned from her point of view. Her motivations were pure, even if her methods were distasteful. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, we didn't know. Everybody thought Melisandre was maybe full of it until we got her chapter. And we're like, nope. She truly believes what she's saying. His question continues here. Assuming Varus dies this season, do you think the circumstances surrounding his death will reveal something about his motivations for playing the Game of Thrones that book readers know, or at least suspect, maybe that maybe that he's of Targaryen descent, something to make, you know, the, to complete the sub, the change from away from the Fagon plot? Uh, yeah, I guess we could see something like that. Maybe a, maybe a Varus connection to that, but I don't know. I feel like they're just going to not do much with his backstory, but that's a really good idea. Any thoughts on that, Lady Gwen? Um... I hadn't really thought about them revealing anything about Varus. I, I, yeah, it's because it's I, not going to happen. <laughs> I think why. this is one of those moments when we're when we're hoping for some kind of subtlety that's not that's not going to happen. Um, sadly, but um, I do have something to say about Melisandre since since you brought it up. And hey, so awesome to meet you um, at the con. But you have basically kind of uh preface something that i was going to say later and i'm just going to paste it right here and just say and just kind of paraphrase it right now so cool. um about melisandra because you're right that moment at the end when she walks out into the dawn and kind of gives up her glamour and turns to dust right before our eyes we literally see her last breath uh, was this powerful visual of fire dying in the cold. And I thought, you know, a moment of redemption. At, at least it was made palpably clear that she had been a slave to her cause that, that she believed in with all of her being for years beyond count, to take that her own words from the book. And all she'd ever done was done in the service of this cause. So we can still have the Mel versus Davos philosophical debate about sacrifice and, you know, what is valid in, in those situations. Mm -hmm. But I think her particular point of view in this moment does seem somewhat validated, notwithstanding her mistakes of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And like, like uh, Tim said, you know, the distasteful methods that she used, um, it, it still seemed to be, you know, like it, it, this is definitely one of those things that George wants us to think about. So 
Yeah. Um, I think it was well handled by the show. Yeah, right. I have to say I'm one of the people. I'm, I'm a recent convert. I'm one of the people who to I have lore? Yeah, to Relore, <laughs> no, to, Mel- to Melisandre specifically, even having read the books. Like, I mean, sure, she can feel that she's doing the right thing and be in complete service and dedication to it. But if she's wrong completely, then who cares that she's, you know, I mean, she's doing distasteful things, like we said, reprehensible things. But if she's doing it and and getting and misinterpreting things wrong, then it's even worse. Whereas here, if we see that she did all of these things and she was right, she did need to do certain things this yeah. way, then, well, I, I, I guess I accept it that she did that i mean people got on my case about things that she did i mean i mentioned this on monday's stream and excusing her burning shireen in the show for example or other things that she's done Mm. and i mean there's a lot of characters who've done reprehensible things who didn't have this sort of of uh you know single-minded goal that humanity needs to be saved which is a pretty noble goal really Mm. so i yeah i have turned around on melisandre completely right on Okay, moving on. Question from Sylvia Sabrets. John, Bran, and Arya need to kill Arya. I think that might be a mistype because it says John, Bran, and Arya need to kill Arya. <laughs> but let's let's see if we can parse this. New oh. three-eyed raven and new night king. Still an Azor type there. Cersei is the plot point driving us away from a third twist. I can maybe see that. Cersei being a distraction to, to maybe some other thing that's still happening that's important. Maybe something beyond John and Danny's parentage issues and succession issues. Uh, but... I, I'm going to advise everybody not to set their expectations for big twists like this. I think it's mm-hmm. definitely possible, but I would not – I don't have expectations for that. I think just like we predicted, Night King would go down before Cersei. Uh, the simplest answers are usually going to be right here. And uh, but, and if you set your expectations low and we hit a twist, well, the twist just lands more because you just weren't expecting it. Mm-hmm. Super chat from John Wiley, no question. Well, thank you, John. Uh, from Fred Targaryen's Uncle Daddy again. Do you think Arya may use Oathkeeper after it goes through Lady Stoneheart's heart? Daddy's steel? Sort of Lightbringer being forged in a way. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. If, I think if, I'm still more dead set on the idea that Azor Ahai, people are too hung up on this idea of Azor Ahai and, and we have to see Lightbringer be forged. Hmm. I don't think it is that. Well, it could be, you know, well, he, I don't think he's saying that it would be the one moment. It would be just one of the many, like, yeah. checking off one of those many boxes that yeah. relates to the But I, And I'm still saying, I think too many, too many people are a little are hung up, I think, in general, you know, with this context. Okay. I think that the 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 heart it's the heart of the story that matters it's the heart mm-hmm. of it which is this, it's a tale of uniting people yeah um and so i think a lot of the other part of it parts of it are extraneous and are things that just were added on to this myth that aren't actually mm. essential okay it's my take stoneheart would probably be to to maybe make this fit if we're trying to be generous stoneheart would be an obstacle towards unity yeah, she is a, sure. like a, basically a revenant, and okay. you know that's not uh, that that might might be why she needs to die to to make things work. Maybe mm-hmm. and that would certainly cause a lot of conflict if like Arya realized she had to do it or something like that. Mm-hmm. I hope not. <laughs> I don't really know that I want to see Arya faced with that. <laughs> but if George does it, I'm sure it'll be awesome. Uh, from Zlata Waters. They got the library rebuilt pretty well, seeing as it's been burnt possibly twice, and I don't think the Boltons care much about libraries. <laughs> That's a good point. The library was pretty nicely rebuilt there for Ari to run around in. Uh, someone dropped a great comment. We we hoped that um, 
that uh, if you look really close in the bookshelves, you might see a, a copy of A Caution for <laughs> Young Girls. That's not that. Great comment, yeah. From Acre Frey, if two witches watch two watches, which watch would watch which watch? Each witch would watch which watch belonged to which witch's wrist. Much love. Oh. I'm not going to make anyone else say that. <laughs> but, you know, that came from our tongue twister man. Thank you, Acre Frey, Lord of the Chicken our Dance. tongue twister man. From Herb Thompson, might be too late, but do you any do any of you three actually think Arya's going to be the one to kill the leader of the others? Uh, yeah, well, we talked about that a little bit. Is if, if Euron leads the others, then she could kill him. Mm. But I don't think there is a boss other. I think we're all pretty much in agreement on that, although there's always a chance that mm. is revealed later. I... Yeah. The idea of a boss other, a great other, I'm, I'm with you there. But the idea of a figure that will bring about more of the long night or have a controlling, you know, status or someone who needs to be defeated, uh, the jury's out for me. Okay. And I feel more mm -hmm. like it's possible based on the show. Cool. All right. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. fair. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I'm definitely not uh, married to that side. I can see your point there. Mm -hmm. Uh, or yeah, so uh, JDS third says why the rumors George R. R. Martin is waiting to release books until after the show are done. The publisher and Jerm have said this is not true. Your thoughts? Yeah, I really don't like that theory. <laughs> not that it's bad that someone believes it, uh -huh. but it just does not make sense. George loses so much money by waiting. Seriously, think about this. How big is the show right now? We this week have broken records for live stream viewers. This would be a good week to release the book, capture that magic during the season. Why wait till it's over, till the things start to fritter off a little bit? It doesn't make sense. He makes more money by releasing it sooner. It doesn't doesn't help him to make money to wait. That's just that's just not true. <laughs> you know, I don't know how I don't know how else to say it. So thank you for asking because I like the opportunity to to reject that theory very openly. And I, I guess you guys would probably agree with that. Yeah, I think yeah. there's zero percent chance that yeah. this would ever happen. Cool, good. Yeah. All right, so uh, uh, hopefully put your mind at ease there. George isn't messing with us like that. Although I guess <laughs> that it would be kind of neat to find out that he was actually done. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would be neat. His publishers, furthermore, would never. They're like, uh, give us never. that money now. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they would not be sitting on a on a completed book and waiting for any reason. Yeah, they wouldn't. <laughs> they wouldn't like HBO couldn't make them not do that. To be like HBO's like, uh, we're gonna pay you ten million dollars to hold back that book. Yeah, I don't think so. And why would they do that? Right. <laughs> What's HBO's motivation there? I don't even think that's. I think that's kind of sketchy. Anyway, mm. let's move on. Christina Dillsdale says appreciation super chat. Well, thank you, Christina. Uh, Carrie Neves, thank you for your refreshing positivity. Thank you for that as well. L. Hamilton, super chat without a question. Thank you, L. Hamilton. Tina Carney, does the Night King re-raise the dead that are already killed by Dragonglass, and Steel when he raised the dead mid-battle? Is this ever covered? It seems like no, that he can't re-raise them, but I'm not 100% clear on that. It's definitely not explained in com uh, completely. I would point out that he didn't re-raise the, the, um, the one obvious one that would have settled that point once and for all okay. uh the giant <laughs> that is true yes yeah. although that the giant did kind of fall apart but still it could have risen you know in part so yeah that's yeah. uh, part of why you know some people theorize that the fire is even better because you definitely aren't re resurrecting them if they get burned mm -hmm. um from Maura Lee, just a show of appreciation and loved you both for the excellent content. Thank you very much, Maura. I hope you saw earlier the cats were on screen, or one of them was. <laughs> yeah, Xerxes. From Rebecca Santa, I'm with you. Azor Ahai being many people. The main tale, we're told, is that of a really talented blacksmith. Who's to say, or who's to say that Forget and Wielder... The Forger. Of, the Forger, sorry, yes. The Forger and Wielder of Lightbringer are the same. 
Yeah, why, why would yeah. they necessarily be the same? Yeah. Good question, or good point. Okay, um, moving on. Uh, we perhaps failed to discuss the biggest prophesied hero of them all. Dolorous Ed. Can we all have a... And now his watch is ended for our man, Dolorous Ed. Yes. And now, and his, now watch his watch is, is ended. ended. Thank you, thank you. Yes. Uh, it's so hard to predict show Ed versus book Ed because the Night's Watch has been compressed into very few figures when there's really a lot of different characters in the Night's Watch, even though it's not exactly a large organization in the books. But there's a lot of named characters that just don't exist in the show. So it's kind of hard to imagine Book Ed having a similar arc because of all that compression. But then again, uh, he's on the wall. It's not a very safe place to be. It's kind of hard. It's, you could kind of imagine him having a somewhat similar end. And uh, us, a couple years from now, maybe having the same moment of giving him a toast. <laughs> Anything to say about Ed, either of y'all? Ed's dead. <laughs> Ed's dead, baby. Ed yeah. is dead. <laughs> but he's a hero. He is a hero. Right on. No, what what I have to say about Ed has to do with Sam specifically. It has to yeah. do with um really what I want going forward out of this show, which is to see these characters face this trauma, to process their trauma, to deal with mm -hmm. it. We saw we didn't see as much of it as we thought we would with them being faced with the white version of themselves. But Sam saw someone he was close friends with, someone that he was friends with, period. He mm -hmm. saw him get killed in a horrific way after he had already been in a situation that would just give anyone PTSD. I really need time to see Sam and others process the just the complete mm -hmm. horror that they saw. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Yeah. yeah. I also hope we get a little bit of a chance to see these characters on some level making all those sacrifices matter, you know, yeah. Sam, you know, sort of taking, you know, Ed, Ed saved his life and, you know, let's, let's make that matter. So Sam, you know, does amazing things. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Winterfell a bit. There's, it's, it's easy mm -hmm. to get the wrong idea about book Winterfell from looking at show Winterfell. They're very different. Mm -hmm. Book Winterfell is way larger. The Godswood alone is three acres. It would be a lot easier for Arya to get hidden in that or for, you know, Alice Karstark to go find a place to hide. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But even with Winterfell, show Winterfell being vastly smaller, it still wouldn't be, or book Winterfell still wouldn't be big enough to fit that huge army in it. So they would still have to do some weird stuff if there were some sort of big show down there, which they're, in the, the show, book version is probably going to be different. It's probably be Stannis uh, leading, you know, a co northern coalition against the first real onslaught of the others that we see in the books. But there's other options. Um, and there's two walls. That's another huge factor. Book there's Winterfell has two yeah. walls. Yeah. So there would be a lot more time to just like, it would be a lot more drawn out and a lot more slow building as far as the dead maybe getting over the walls, like making a, making yeah. a bridge of their own bodies, things like that. And the the moat is between the two walls. Yeah. So you could see that sort of fire barrier Ooh. being, you know, in a ring of fire in between the two walls, which would be incredibly epic. That would be awesome. <laughs> so. uh, now I want this now that I've heard it. <laughs> <laughs> so I was trying to think of analogies for what the army of the dead is like, because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people weighing in on the battle strategy. We're not really going to, we're not going to get into that. We did that on Monday and it's not really the most, it's certainly not the most interesting topic, I think. Uh, Not to me. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks. It, it, but there are some takeaways for sure. And 
one thing I thought of as an analogy that the army of the dead isn't, you can't really think about them like you think about human armies. They don't function like that. They don't have fear. They don't have, you know, they have a unity of purpose, but they don't have any individuality. The, the whole, the, the watching them like use their bodies as a bridge over the fire, that's, that's totally ant behavior. That's how ants like handle like drowning and, and crossing dangerous rivers. They just, some of them sacrifice themselves. It's, and they have like a queen that leads them, you know, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of like fits the analogy works pretty well. Mm -hmm. And I thought of this and I, and then I later realized that this is a, a huge book parallel, the concept of seeing the dead as ants and how the George is like all over this parallel. I almost like realized like, Hey, I probably was just remembering this subconsciously rather than maybe this wasn't a new idea after all, because this is already in the books. Lady Gwen, you want to read this really cool quote uh, from Daenerys' last A Dance with Dragons chapter? Yeah, this is, this is really good. I mean, just, just substitute dead for ants while you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Remember who you are, Daenerys, the stars whispered in a woman's voice. The dragons know. Do you? The next morning, she woke stiff and sore and aching, the ants crawling on her arms and legs and face. When she realized what they were, she kicked aside the stalks of dry brown grass that had served as her bed and blanket and struggled to her feet. She had bites all over her, little red bumps, itchy and inflamed. Where did all the ants come from? <laughs> Annie brushed them from her arms and legs and belly. She ran a hand across her stubbly scalp where her hair had burned away and felt more ants on her head and one crawling down the back of her neck. She knocked them off and crushed them under her bare feet. There were so many, it turned out that their anthill was on the other side of her wall. She wondered how the ants had managed to climb over it and find her. To them, these tumble-down stones must loom as huge as the wall of Westeros. The biggest wall in all the world, her brother Viserys used to say, as proud as if he'd built it himself. I love that last line, as proud as if he'd built it himself. <laughs> so George isn't trying to be subtle here. He just flat out says, like the wall of Westeros. You know, he shows it. And you're like, oh, look at that parallel. <laughs> and so that's awesome. That's a really fantastic parallel. Shout out to Ravenous Reader, who, when I made the tweet about the army did by ants, it was just like, boom. Ants <laughs> and had and and had this quote ready, so it was like, yeah. bam. Danny also thinks of people as ants when she's high on her dragon. At another point, so the ant analogy comes back, and John also does the same when he's atop the wall. He looks down and sees the wildlings and rangers in the distance. Well, just rangers in this case, and thinks of them as ants. And then he reminds himself those are people. It's really kind of poignant. He's like, because even though no matter what they look like, he's still like no no those are individual those are my brothers those are rangers etc so it's really neat it's uh that's a great parallel um so <clears throat> it's uh very cool to think about for the books and the, the concept of how the dead are going to move throughout this world once they get beyond the wall and danny's asking all these questions about there's so many and how did they get here and we're wondering that too how are they going to get over the wall how are they going to get around mm -hmm. it so she's she's really channeling the reader's questions there Let's talk about uh, dragon battles, unless y'all had more to say about that. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm a believer, uh, you guys probably are too, maybe, that we'll have some sort of dragon versus dragon fight in the books. Maybe um, very similar to what we saw with Viserion being controlled by Euron or an undead thing and fighting that. Uh, another hat tip to Ravenous Reader who points out this the Night King's Stormfront uh, which appears to have been time to stop Drogon and Rhaegal as they were flying out. It was kind of like a hit them with a blast of wind, icy wind. It's really similar. It's a great callback to the Roinar using their water spouts and their 
and their haze and their clouds of vapor to fight the dragons of Faleria. And a cloud of haze or vapor could, pre pretty, could be pretty effective in disorienting a dragon rider or three. And you could obscure ground targets, make it harder for the, for the dragons to do strafing runs on, on infantry and things like that. So, hey, that could come up, you know, could, we could see something like that. Not the Roinar magic, but more White Walker magic that's maybe similar to that. Yeah, uh, uh, regarding that mist, uh, there's definitely a, a precedent that's introduced in A Dance of Dragons. Tormund is uh, explaining to John about the death of his son Torwind, and he says to him, A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist, Crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe, like a knife inside your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? Really good. That was a great grab there, Lady Gwen. That quote, that quote is so perfect for what we were saying there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, for more, a little more, if that's a if, if that teases your piques your interest, we have our Nymeria slash Roinar episodes that gets more into that water magic stuff. And of course, uh, a lot of Radio Westeros podcasts worth listening to on some of these topics as well. Do you have one that maybe uh, have you talked about Tormund much on your show? Uh, I would guess. If we did, it would have been in our John Snow episode. Oh, okay. Well, maybe the John, the John Snow episode is probably the place to go then. <laughs> our John Snow episode is titled "Only the Cold," so uh, oh, we can yeah. talk about that subject. <laughs> okay. So. Um, we didn't get any ice spiders as big as hounds or any size really. There were no ice spiders uh, at all, uh, and I imagine in the books we will get all that and all kinds of undead animals. Uh, you know, the army of the dead in the show is not as is a little more homogenous than we'll get in the books which i don't that's not a complaint it just adds a lot of money to their to their bottom line i think so mm -hmm. we can't that's, that's one of those kind of things that we really i think that goes beyond nitpicking <laughs> but that's just me you're you know i'm not i'm not saying you're wrong if you hold a different opinion but i do think we'll get like birds and animals mm -hmm. and wolves and dead bears and all that the army of the dead is not going to be just people and that's going to yeah. make it even more terrifying and weird Definitely. It costs very little for George to type a sentence describing ice spiders or undead, yeah. whatever, um, and terrify us. Yeah. Where that's very different from making it come alive on screen. So. And what we did get, one cool shot we got, it was really hard to see. I encourage you all to go back and watch the episode. Look around the time when the whites are just standing there without a way to get through the fire pit. Night King hasn't done their, given them their bridge orders yet. It's a little odd that no one's shooting arrows at the dead while they're just standing there, but we do have Danny keeping her focus in the background. She's just blasting the dead back and forth, just strafing them all back and forth. It's very cool. At one point, she takes out a giant. It's really cool. There's a big-ass giant in the back, and she just torches it completely, and it's like, ooh, look at that. <laughs> cool moment there. Uh, yeah, I think it's... it's it's. Uh, I, wish, I wish we could get a shot of it. We just didn't have time to find it because it's a really kind of obscure moment. Uh, so hopefully we get stuff like that. Let's talk about Liana Mormont for just a second. Um, mm -hmm. Speaking of giants, <laughs> she had a pretty epic death, a lot like Donald Noy. Donald Noy in the mm -hmm. books dies uh, um, with, uh, he dies because he fights the giant in the Mag the Mighty in the tunnel. Uh, mm -hmm. Kind of like, it's basically Gren's death in the in the show there. So mm -hmm. um, that was a nice little hat tip to the books there. And uh, you sort of, you had your own little take on that too. 
Yeah, I mean, really, you know, a real world sort of um, illusion is David and Goliath. You know, the this idea of the smallest warrior fighting the biggest warrior, and um, I think you said that uh, Bella mentioned David and Goliath, which I had not heard. Oh, that's cool. Right on. Yeah. 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 Uh, I guess, uh, yeah, Shea had to go off for a second, so we can clarify with that with her later, but she's the one to look yeah. that up. But yeah, well, okay. yeah Be- that, Bella Ramsey's made Bella that comment. Ramsey. She's a very smart little girl. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And apparently yeah. that's what, that is how, what got her a role. Remember like, behind the episode, they're talking about, she was supposed to be a one scene character. And then they said, but then we met Bella Ramsey. So yeah. Apparently, she's a very formidable person. She's making these comments and, you know, kind of winning her way into a much larger role just by through force of personality. Pretty cool. Good for her. That giant uh, that she killed was referred to as Crumb in the subtitles for whatever that means. I don't know if that's a reference to something. Um, let's talk about Danny and Jorah. Um, start us off here, Lady Gwen. Uh, just, uh, one tiny little observation. If you're, if you rewatch his, his defense of Danny, you do see him. This comes post Night King raising, you know, their own dead. So you do see him, uh, kill an Iraq wielding zombie. So obviously one of their own, uh, blink, blink if you miss it kind of moment. But, um, you know, even though she reminded him in the previous episode that he'd been forgiven, for a long time, you know, a long time ago, this was really Jorah's ultimate redemption. I and mean, as much as he's had forgiveness for her, he hasn't really had much chance to prove it. Um, and boy, he really proved it. I mean, he really proved himself here. He, he died protecting her. And quite frankly, one of my very favorite moments, um, I mean, very emotional moment for Jor- with Jorah dying there in Danny's arms, but uh, Drogon coming down and, giving you know danny uh holding jorah in her arms this dragon hug uh and then as the camera just pans out i that, yeah that scene just really killed me you know i that was I good can't say enough yeah that was quality for sure uh and it's, it's a nice reminder that the dragons have a sense of danny's emotions you know it's nothing yes. like the skin changer bond but it's something it's very it's yeah. very powerful a connection you could see him coming up behind her as she was yeah it's just it's amazing <laughs> There's yeah. a couple people out there that said this episode did not have any emotional moments. And I'm just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, we are not watching the same show. <laughs> <laughs> it was because it's so shocking just on that point, you know, because there's so much going on. It's so fast and there's so many kind of, you know, it's so violent that it wasn't as quietly emotive as episode two. But there was still plenty of small moments that yeah. that um brought me to tears i mean i know i had my big bag of mom tissues when i was watching <laughs> handing them out to people sitting next to me while we were watching <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now jorah dying for danny in the show or in the sh- it's very fitting for the show and it could be how it goes in the books he's on a similar path trying to win redemption back from her trying to get back in her good graces i could and i don't doubt that it will happen i mean i wouldn't be super surprised if it didn't but I would be surprised if it didn't. Not super surprised, but I really yeah. expect it to happen. Would you agree mm-hmm. with that? Yes. Oh, yeah. And I doubt he gets grayscale or Hart's Bane or leading. And I doubt he's a leading Dothraki. Uh, I think the Dothraki will lead the Dothraki in the books. But uh, a lot of these details will be different. But I think as a completed character arc, it feels pretty book authentic as far as how he'll, you know, how he'll finish off. Like maybe dying defending Danny. Uh, mm. Maybe. It, it, yeah. it would be fitting. But. Yeah. We'll see what George does. 
Let's talk about, uh, well, actually, sorry, I quote a little a line that Joe Buckley wrote here. He says, I'm a bit in love with season eight, Jorah. Tried to mend all his mistakes, not just Danny-centric ones. Shall we try and make a connection and say Daenerys was always his heart's bane? No, let's not. <laughs> yes, Joe says all that. So good, yeah, good take by Joe there. And it, Joe is going to be having his first appearance live on our show next week. Wednesday, we'll have him as a guest beside you there lady well not literally beside you but you know in the in the yeah. bottom way, virtual in the, box in the corner in our, you know. yes <laughs> side by side in our good dad i'll look forward to that yeah well we needed to bring in uh, uh, someone with a british accent since yoke boy's not around so yeah <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about dragons versus whites we saw night king be immune to dragon fire but my gut and the little bit of available evidence we has it says White Walkers will melt to dragon fire. You guys, I'd like to see you chatters weigh in on that too. Hmm. What do you guys think? I mean, I, I do, you know, I, I think, um, I'm not sure if it was in the inside the episode where they, they talked about, you know, the sort of uncertainty of whether dragon fire or not having any evidence that dragon fire was any different from regular fire. Yeah. Um, I know I saw that somewhere, but, uh, I think it is different. I think it's, it's, clearly different uh it's more akin to wildfire and i would certainly expect wildfire to be effective so against just about anything so i i think that dragons brand makes a point of saying and grant this is also a show but you know he makes a point of saying that no one has ever tried dragons against the the white walkers um and that is true in the books so we can't really say for sure uh, but i think dragons will be pretty effective yeah i agree and 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 same with the whites the books we should expect dragon fire to be just as effective against the whites like it is in the show i don't think there's any any uh reason to doubt that seems mm. pretty basic pretty straightforward yeah let's talk a bit about the unsullied i thought they were one of the cooler things about the the show i think some people disagreed <laughs> but it was cool watching them do their formations and watching them move in their patterns and their drill their their ultra discipline nice complete opposite of the dothraki uh with their wild charge kind of it's you know in in the long term you would guess that maybe in the books daenerys's elite cavalry unit will learn to fight as a unit with her elite infantry but that there wasn't time for that in the show and i don't mean they didn't have time to show that i mean literally the time show's timeline didn't give them a chance to learn that so i think that's kind of realistic that they didn't fight as a unit they just didn't uh, mm -hmm. have time for it now, you notice something cool relating to this really fun moment where they do the little spear cage with Melisandre in it and, and leading her up to the fire pit. That was awesome. Not just because Melisandre's act or uh, Carice's acting was so good in that moment, but because it was just a neat kind of mm. tactic for a yeah. battle, a little sub moment there. And you can, you can see it in the books. You know, there's going to be, there's, there's a lot of reason to think there's going to be R'hllor priests on Danny's side, more than one, probably. And uh, you could see something like this happening. Uh, not not specifically like it, but, you know, priests, sorcerers as part of an army. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Very high magic, but we could be we could be heading that way. So you noticed uh, this this a vibe from the books that relates to this. Yeah, I mean, as as they're guarding the retreat and then guarding this this foray out to uh, to light the fire, uh, I got a real Kohor uh, vibe, which is the the three thousand of Kohor. Uh, if you don't know the story, it's a fabled you know battle between um, 
the 3,000 unsullied that came, that were purchased to guard the city of Kohor against the Dothraki onslaught. And they stood against, uh, well, it was more than 12,000 because uh, I don't know exactly how many Dothraki survived, but 12,000 were dead compared to uh, fewer than 2,500 of the of the unsullied just in terms of their bravery and you know sort of like with their proximity to dothraki uh and their different fighting styles i was just strongly reminded of their their dedication to duty and their bravery uh against the odds there at cohort and i'll you know even as i was watching it i was thinking the words that gray worm spoke to melisandre valar doheris all right, men must serve yeah <laughs> And that moment, right, the, when he just Ugh. has to make that tough call. Yeah, he, he knows that the, that his men who are outside the trench, they're going to light the trench on fire, but he still has soldiers that are on the other side of it. And uh, he makes the call, and you see his face, and he does it because he knows, you know, like so many people through this episode, and we talked about this a little bit up so far but you know, with more examples i think coming up that have to make these hard decisions uh and make sacrifices for the greater good so it's, it's an ongoing theme and interesting one to consider very well said so we're talking about gray worm welcome back Shay. we're talking about gray worm mm -hmm. and melisandre you had some great thoughts here um yeah i really liked the moment that melisandre and gray worm shared there that was very meaningful you know where she says all men must die and he replies with all men must serve that's sure. exactly what both of them are doing here of course melisandre ends up being the one to die and gray worm continues to serve but melisandre's entire life has been in service as has gray worms yeah and i think gray worm will die still i still think he's mm -hmm. doomed that's mm -hmm. that's not. Uh, I can't really uh, doubt you on that. I hope you're wrong, and but I can't. Really honestly, argue. I feel like Raleigh Ritchie, you know, Gray Worm, Jacob Anderson, whatever you want to call him, he's got so many names. The man <laughs> with many names uh, had another great moment um, when the Dothraki have had like their fire is extinguished, and and everyone's in the crowd is is realizing this. There are tears in the actor's eyes as he watches, as he waits for the return of the men who charged, and mm. like really chokes me up just thinking about the like emotion that Grey Worm, mm. like despite being this like warrior, that he does like cry, you know? Yeah, mm. it's really neat. Yeah, and you know it's not from fear because we hear earlier that he doesn't. He, he's you know particularly fearless. Yeah, I don't think it's exactly. I don't think it's that he's afraid. I think that he's he's. It's a sad thing that he witnessed. Yeah, he's just. Concerned with doing his duty and protecting people and all that, yeah. Now you noticed uh, a really funny bit about uh, Christopher Hivju Tormund from yeah. the behind the episode. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, Christopher said, and this is why I didn't want. And also, this right here is why I didn't want to be in this episode oh. <laughs> uh, or talk about this subject, uh, and why I got up. Um, he said, um, Christopher, who plays Tormund, said, if you he said he told the extras, if you manage to take me down, take me down. So in some takes, Tormund does die, that's which a, makes me a wonder a little bit, like if they were like, well, yeah, in some takes he dies, but we were never going to use that take. Uh, or if there's possible for him to That's die. interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah, I wonder if they just kind of gardener styled Tormund's life there. <laughs> Probably not. But. Yeah, whatever works. <laughs> Okay, uh, so let's keep going. We've got some more questions to handle, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the crypts. And Danny and John, we already talked about Melisandre, uh, so we're, we're moving on here. Charlie Eggert, 
I'm a longtime listener, but first time sending in a question. Do you think, given the difference in book versus show around the Night King, that they may only have temporarily set back the White Walkers? Perhaps in order to put them down forever, John, in his role as the prince that was promised, still has to go north and destroy the Werewood at the location of the Night King's birth. This might explain why in the show Arya defeated them at Winterfell. Uh, yeah, so that is not unlikely. I don't think that, since there's no boss other in the books, probably the destruction of their birthplace might be important. They may have like a base or a home and the lands of always winter. The heart of winter is a concept that's been tossed around and mentioned. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's something that, that bears thinking about, although I, I tend to think it's going to be more about the whole, the whole movement coming south. Uh, but, you know, we can't forget that Characters have dragons, and even if the main action is moving south, some characters could still move north if there's some magical thing that has to be destroyed up up there. I can't hear you, Aziz. Oh, I'm sorry. I was muted. <laughs> I didn't know if it was me. <laughs> yeah. And that makes that does make a lot of sense. Even though they did talk about it in the show, they showed the Night King's birth and made it somewhat important. They didn't really hint at it as a source of his power, but I could see very much it mattering in the, sh in the book. So we'll have to wait and see. Anthony Gonzalez wants to know, why was it a good idea for both Liana and Arya to be held in the air by a monster only to kill it in the last second in the same episode? You know, honestly, I didn't even notice that. <laughs> and when no one mentioned that on Monday either. So that's an interesting point. Uh, hmm. I thought it was meant to be a parallel between the two of them. So it yeah. felt like Arya, oh, they killed Liana, so Arya's doomed too. Ah, mm. so they could, okay, yeah. Because there was that moment yeah. we were all, like, at Ice and Fire Con, and the whole room was like, yeah, no, yeah. No, right, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that was great. So something to just increase our sense of terror or dread, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> and then we have a question from Anthony Gonzalez, who's, again, who says, in a straight-up fight, could the veil take the Golden Company? Hmm. We're not really clear on what the Vale's strength is right now, but they haven't lost a lot of manpower. They definitely sent a, a significant force north. But let's just assume they're at full strength. Full strength, they would be larger than the Golden Company, but there would be a lot of fighters in that army who would not be up to par. The average Gold Company soldier would be vastly superior to even a lot of Westerosi knights. Uh, so I, I would go with the Golden Company, I think, but it would be close. I think they're they're mixed types of units they'd have a, they, they have better archers especially if they have their elephants come on but uh <laughs> hard to say but i would definitely I'll, i would lean gold company for sure there thomas pappas says because it doesn't get any better than spending the night with history of westeros and radio westeros well thank you buddy great to see you at ice and fire con thank you for the support and thanks for the shirts i'll be wearing them the next several weeks and our on our show here and everybody else <laughs> will get to see them too Chris Trombley, Night King being killed, how much will magic be a factor in the world going forward? Yeah, it's that's a good question. Is it, It's the chicken and the egg thing. Is magic mm. come from them or do they come from it? What do you think, Lady Gwen? Like, you can relate, relate the comet and other concepts to this if you want. Well, um, hmm. it, it is, I guess, you know, we're, we're dealing with what's always been thought to be a low-level magic world, although magic has been increasing in that world. Uh, it, certainly if the Night King is destroyed and perhaps if the dragons are sacrificed in the process, we could see a 
similar scenario to I'm going to go right back to Lord of the Rings because I love it and we know George loves it and he's referenced it in terms of where his ending is going, at least in general terms, where, you know, the age of magic is over in the world and you and then now comes the age of men and there is you know magic will either be you know catastrophically over or just gradually fade out of the world and i definitely could see that being how things go in the end of this story that is something i hope the show touches on and certainly the books will because george even says that there will be maybe a maybe not a an answer necessarily but a resolution to the to the climate to the winters rather to the strange seasons and uh, that seems it's got to be a magical thing, right? <laughs> uh, so let's move on here. Um, JC asks, is there a way to rationalize why the Night King had to personally come for Bran? That's my biggest issue with the episode. I, I get it. I think it's the Night King was created as a, to be a creature of hate. I think they imbued, the children maybe have imbued their hatred of humanity in him. Uh, because he was a human. And that would be a way to sort of steer him towards the purpose, which is... They wanted him to be a weapon, and it seems like that weapon got out of control. It had some unintended consequences, but ultimately he was a weapon sent to destroy humanity, so it makes sense that he would hate them. And he wants this, this is his triumphal moment. He wants to kill, he's got personality. We, he's not an automaton. He smirks, he does, you know, he, he come at me bros. He doesn't have a deep character personality, but he's not a, like a robot. So he does mm -hmm. have like, a sense of I, I've been waiting for this revenge for eight thousand years or something like that. So, I think he, if, I can get why he would want to do it personally, even though he's like a monster. What do you think, Lady Gwen? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly, especially given what Bran reveals his role to be—that he's, you know, he's basically the, you know, the repository of human memory and and knowledge. Uh, without him, you would see humanity perhaps enter into this time of chaos uh, where, you know, men forget everything. Um, like, like we heard in that great quote about the, after the last long night. So if you want to bring destruction and chaos, it's nothing like, you know, pull, pull out the hard drive and, <laughs> and everything's going to fall apart. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, let's just briefly talk about the crypts. We're kind of running out of time here. Uh, just to say that we did an episode on the Crypts of Winterfell, and I think the Crypt scene is going to be massively different in the books. I don't think this was that great of a scene action-wise. The, the, there were some great character moments. Lady Gwen, real quick, talk to us about Tyrion and Sansa. Uh, Tyrion and Sansa in the Crypts had some good moments. You know, Tyrion invokes the Battle of Blackwater. I was waiting for a classic Sansa moment, singing, okay, maybe there are reasons why not to sing you know maybe she's outgrown singing she, they're trying to depict her loss of of hope she, she's a, quite a different person maybe yeah. they just simply couldn't be making any noise but you'd still expect sansa to be doing something to encourage people and they didn't really show that so that was a big disappointment to me probably my biggest of this episode and you know i've i've talked about it a few times in, in places around i just um but I understand the reasons why the show also had to show her feeling hopeless or helpless. Uh, narratively, the callback would have been very satisfying and in keeping with Tyrion's Blackwater reference and other callbacks to that, to that episode or 
that part that part of the story, um, not to mention her own character development. We shouldn't forget that Sansa's weapon is her courtesy. Her, you know, her courtesy is her shield, and she uses her words in the same way that Arya uses a sword or, or violence. That's the sort of the dichotomy between them. So I really would have liked to see more of, you know, more of them focusing on that that yeah. aspect of Sansa's personality. Right on. Um, yeah, but I just that moment when they held the hands and moved out armed with their little obsidian daggers to protect the people that were with them was on a rewatch simply breathtaking. I mean, it's just, it's a small moment. It's not exactly what we may have hoped for, for Sansa's character, but it was, it was a moment and yeah. I definitely appreciated it. Joe Buckley points out that the episode when it, or the episode rather, when this happens in the, in the books to keep in mind, it will be really dark <laughs> you know it'll it'll add to the, the creepiness of the scene is the crypts won't be mm. nearly as well lit as they were in the sh in the show which is funny to think about the crypts being well lit when so much of the episode wasn't <laughs> yeah right uh, and uh, re remember john has a dream about being in the crypts and then the lights going out oh um, yeah i forgot about the lights going so, out part. good call yeah yeah do you so you wrote here uh that we should ask whether we ship Tyrion and sansa in the books. <laughs> <laughs> well you know i think a lot of people are talking about that and you know, we have to remember that in that book Tyrion has done some awful things and maybe Sansa deserves better. Uh, but here, you know, they show them kind of becoming friendly. And so, you know, I, I've always kind of gotten a vibe that there might be something more to their story together in the books. But I think that it's equally as likely that it will be a... Um, kind of like what happened here that they'll just, you know, they say, well, we would have been great together. Uh, let's be friends, but it's not meant to be, you know, at least where they come to some sort of um, commonplace where, you know, they don't hate each other. I don't think yeah. they ever really did. But. Right on. I agree. Apparently there was a scene in the, sh in the show of them actually fighting uh, the whites, but they cut yeah. that for time. Yeah. It's right at, on. It's at 19 minutes in. About 19 minutes in, she says. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, let's move on. Danny and John, we're going to be done really soon here. Uh, real quick, just wanted to say that Danny rea Danny's reaction to her Kalisar being wiped out was, was a great moment of conflict. Uh, and it's a good example of the old military adage that no plan survives first contact with the enemy. And that's exactly what happened. As soon as the Dothraki ran into that army of the dead, the plan mm -hmm. changed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can see it. I didn't. I didn't pick up on it the first time because there's so many, so much going on. And the first time I watched it, I didn't. But you see it in her face. She is not about to let her Kalisar. Like you see the full realization of that. Those are her people going out there, and she has the power to help them. And she's not about to let that happen. Um, so once again, with Danny, we see this theme of self-sacrifice. We see this in her arc a lot in the books. Um, but I will say, even though she kind of you know, steps out of the plan, she does come back and save John's life at least twice. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's true. She does. <laughs> she still protects him. It's interesting to think about what might be going through her head as far as some of these other things. But this, the whole John Danny stuff is certainly uh, going to rear its head in the last three episodes, I would assume. So we'll wait on that. Yeah. Super chat from Joe Kraft. Hey, buddy. Good to see you on here. My, one of my favorite people to talk baseball with on Facebook. No question attached, so we'll move on. Let's go ahead and move to the outro here. Um, we have some things that we didn't quite get to, but most of it we covered, and, and the other things we can pick up on another time. We have some things we can pick up on Saturday. 
There's always plot lines that aren't finished yet, and we can always uh, keep talking about them as they move a little farther down. So let me just say a few bits of thanks. Thanks, Lady Gwen, for being here, and I guess we'll be seeing you next Wednesday as well. Will do. Yeah, I will be here right for on. the duration. <laughs> Remember again, folks, I put the link to Radio Westeros' YouTube in the description of this episode. You can find it there. Please go subscribe and maybe check out their Long Night episode or their Melisandre episode if you haven't. Or re-listen to it if you already have. Valar re-listeners. <laughs> Valar yes. re-watches. Uh, looks like one more super chat snuck in here just before I was getting ready to move on. <laughs> Let's take care of that real quick. From Danelle Peoples, do you think there will be any explanation slash resolution regarding the bearded Night King figure in the cave paintings? Uh, probably not. No, I would love them to do that, but I think they were. I think that was kind of just a depiction of, of like a boss White Walker, like a, one of the one of the original conversions. If they didn't do that, but I'm not really sure what to make of that. I'm not sure that was a Night King figure rather than just another one of the others, uh, or maybe he just shaved. <laughs> <laughs> right. Get a more modern hairdo. Yeah, he Shame. wanted to look cool. He's like, oh, this beard was cool 8,000 years ago, but it's out of style now. <laughs> Super chat from Brian Decker. No question. Thank you, Brian. Okay, let's uh, let's say some thanks. Thank you to Michael Klarfeld for the music. Sorry, for the video intro and the maps. Thanks to Joey Townsend, Jesse Kowal for our music. Thanks to Ashea for wearing so many hats at once, writing, handling the chats, handling the technology. Super... Uh, so much to say. So much thanks to Ishida She does so much. And she still has this tailbone issue, so it's painful for her to sit here. So really, it is it is a serious sacrifice for her to, to do these live streams right now. Uh, I'm <laughs> She's a Sora. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks you, everybody. We had a great turnout again today. We're very thankful for that. We'll be back again soon. Here are some patron shout-outs for y'all. Let's move on to that and say goodbye. Thank you to uh, our peers of the realm. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The smiling wolf is Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower. Soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat. Hand of the Queen, Ashea, who is known as the best. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog. Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of Chiliad and Warden of the East. Uh, Kabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, is Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle, King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet, led by Flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by Flagship Prince Damon. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, is the Fallborn, Lord of Bluespring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of Dragonglass and the Valyrian Steel Blade, Red Frost. Our small council includes Lord Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James, Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood, Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers, the Bastard of Greenshield, is Master of Coin, Lord Johan of House Orcos is called Shadowhawk, he is Master of Whisperers. Also, a shout out to, from rather, Denise of Lazar, who says, so for Rebea and her backers, I'm going to lay a lot out I have the Orange Shore. My fleet will basically control the coast along the disputed lands. I am not abandoning my seat on the council as I am liberating those under the yoke of slavery and showing them that the Lord of Light is the path to follow. <laughs> so, a challenge has been issued there. That is against the Queen's High Council, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the shadows, we bear our claws. She is ready to defend her seat with a full fury of everything she can muster and this will not be a simple fight. We'll see how it goes. Bloody Ben Blackwood is our master of whispers. 
Our master of coin is Lady Laura of House Brandos. Grand Maester M. Elizabeth is middle daughter of Liana Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link. And our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian steel blade Fate. Lady Diarlis of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Green Blood, Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate, Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashland Winter of the Hawk's Eye is Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest is wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistor Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood. Lord uh, Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Basher of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master, Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Lady Baelish, Dark Widow of Harrenhal. Nevesa the, the Twin-Hearted, Suspected Skin Changer and Holder of Castle Carahelm. Sir Valentin of House Jen, Creator of the Game of Predictions. Lady Liana Kelly of Wolf Island, Protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer, Lady of Earth Dog Hall, Huntress of the Wolfswood. Lady Raywin of House Dillsdane, the Star Spear. Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, and heir to Bloodraven. Uh, our King's Guard is led by Lord Miriam R., backed up by Sir Dollars D., longest tenured White Sword. Willa Crosbane, Guardian of the White Tree, uh, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk. Sir Dean the White is the Knight of the Black Star. Sir George of House Pepsi is the Beverage Knight. Gregor of the Snow is called Snow Bear, a bastard of Winterfell. Lord Captain Commander Hamma Helmet is the Sellsword Sentinel, leader of the Queen's Guard. Alexander of House Atreides is from the Seat of Dune. He, I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Becca the Bard is Songbird of the North. Michonne the Melodious is Star of Old Town, Minds over Masters. Sir Rambo is Knight of House Ganon, First Blood. Sir Leon of House Walker is wielder of the twin Valyrian steel blades Fire and Ice and the Werewood Bow Rain. Amber the Adamant is the Knight of Mist and Mother of Squids. Laura, uh, and last but not least, our History of Westeros Night's Watch is led by Lord Commander Benjen Umber, the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss. First builder, Magor Snow, is a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire and the Snow. First steward, Sir Jurion, is of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. First ranger, Source, or Sir Source Delica of House Gramercy, is certainly last, but certainly not least. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you all next time. We'll get that bonus episode out soon. We got that Max Brooks interview coming out soon as well. It's got to get that edited. Valor rewatches, Valar reread us. <laughs>